Welcome to episode 56 of the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm James Cohn. And we are recording from James's apartment in Mid-City, New Orleans, just outside Bayou St. John. And this is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp Flicks. <laughs> like that extra <laughs> little oomph you put in there. Yeah, I'm trying to cut like a pro wrestling promo. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we're moving outside of uh, festival season now. It's getting like really hot outside, which means that tourists and out of towners kind of go away for a couple months. Yeah. But I just finished up two weeks of like living in the jazz fest like war zone. But I did just get a new TV, so I've been watching a lot of movies at my house. Sweet. What have you been watching in the last month since the last time we talked? I've I watched like a lot of TV recently. Actually, I've been watching like Atlanta, catch up on Handmaid's Tale. But as far as movies. I really, really got into this movie called Cachet, this French thriller. Uh, it's directed by the same guy that did Funny Games. Michael uh, Haneken. Michael Haneken, or I think that's how you pronounce it. But Mikey Heineken. Mikey Heineken. <laughs> <laughs> and man, it has definitely got me thinking more than any movie in recent memory. I, I can't really go into detail because to spoil it would be so like sacrilegious for this movie but man it is such a head scratcher and it's the kind of movie where you actually have to like slow mo through certain scenes to catch like little clues and details and every every time you feel like you found the answer to the puzzle it just brings up more questions and in Roger Ebert's review he says on his third viewing he finally found the smoking gun or whatever so if it takes him three viewings to figure it out then you know you're going down the rabbit hole. And it's such a fun watch. And, like, I'm definitely going to make you watch it for our next episode. Yeah, I have, like, very vague memories of this movie. I feel like it came out around 15 years ago. And I saw the trailer, and I just remember these, like, menacing VHS tapes arriving at this couple's house. That's, like, security footage of them, right? Yeah, it's just someone is filming the outside of their house and then dropping the tapes off on their doorstep. And it's like... Who sent the taste and why? Yeah. That's the main question in the film. And oh man, it is so freaking good. I was thinking about it a lot when I was watching that movie, The Gift, with like Jason Bateman recently. Yeah, similar, but it doesn't give you all the answers. Right. I like Haneke's version of like emotional cruelty and psychological like menace. I'm not that familiar with his work outside Funny Games, but mm-hmm. I, I did like the sort of like glib tone of that one while it's being like really cold to its own characters. So yeah, I would be interested in checking that out. Well, I'm going to make you watch it, so you really have no choice. But anyway, that movie's been on my mind for the last like two weeks. I can't stop thinking about it. So we'll have to discuss that in a future episode. But you went to some film festival recently, right? Yeah. I mean, warning up front, this episode's probably going to be longer than we usually go, even though you and I are only talking about one movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm kind of thinking of this as like spring cleaning. Me and Cece went to French Film Fest in February and recorded this, like, really long conversation about all the movies we saw there. Mm-hmm. And included in there was, like, a bunch of Agnes Varda films, which I had never seen any of her work before and just completely fell in love. What, it, what has she done that I might know? Uh, most recently, Faces Places was uh, an Oscar contender last year. She was part of the French New Wave along with the Godard and all those folks back in the day, too. And actually, she was married to the guy who made The Umbrellas of Cherbourg and oh, uh, Young Girls of Rochefort. Well, that's what I remember watching Yeah, yeah <laughs> last year when we, we did that. Yeah, so the same way that they gave him a sort of a retrospective, she got her own like spotlight this year, which was nice. And I also saw my favorite film of the year at French Film Fest. Really? And uh, it's, it's going to hit VOD later this year. So later in the episode, you'll hear me gush a bunch about that stuff. 
But I've been to another film festival since we even recorded that. What, the Overlook? Yes. The Horror Fest? So, Overlook started in Oregon at the hotel where they filmed the exterior shots for The Shining. And what they did was they booked the hotel for this festival. They booked, like, half the rooms or whatever. And all these, like, horror fans converged there. And it was, like, this sort of, like, summer camp vibe where everyone was, like, locked inside. And all the screenings for the festival were at the hotel. Mm -hmm. And all the panels were in the same spot. So people never really left. For some reason, the uh, hotel where that was staged wanted to sort of distance themselves from The Shining uh, lore. Like, they're kind of like a family-oriented business. Uh, So they kind of pushed the Overlook people out. They moved to Colorado the next year to this other, like, haunted hotel. And then the third year was in New Orleans um, Mm -hmm. at the Bourbon Orleans, which is supposedly... A haunted... A haunted hotel. Right. And the difference is the Bourbon Orleans, which is in the French Quarter, sort of leans into their, like, reputation. It's like those haunted ghost tours you see everywhere. Yeah, and that was part of the fest, too, is they were advertising for the ghost tours. Mm. They wanted people to go out in the America's most haunted city and explore, like, the uh, the French Quarter area. So it's not as, like, insular as older versions of the festival. The Bourbon Orleans was headquarters, and they had, like, panels and podcast recordings there. And then they also had all the film showings at Le Petit Theater and at Canal Place. So it was like within like a 10 block radius, but it was not quite as like centralized as older mm. versions of it. But, you know, being here, it's just so fucking cool to have this like genre film festival come to town with these like major titles of stuff that I really want to see. I know they were showing Hereditary, which is like number one thing I want to see oh, yeah. this year. So stoked to see that. And also the new Unfriended sequel. And I love Unfriended. And they actually premiered uh, the new Puppet Master here, which is hilarious. Wait, speaking of Unfriended, did I tell you that I saw Truth or Dare? No, you did not. I really want to hear your opinion on this. I, I saw it. La- <laughs> I went on like a early showing on a Saturday. Is this a movie pass decision? Movie pass. Yeah. Which may or may not exist in the next couple months. I've been... Getting so much conflicting... By the end of this recording, who knows? It might be over. But uh, you know what? I actually... I really thought it was fun. I love it. And I thought that... Because I remember you mentioning the ending to me. The ending made me love it that much more because of its like implications. But um, for like a PG-13 Snapchat filter horror film, very fun. And I don't know. I can't really gauge the audience's reaction because I saw it pretty much alone. But I was like laughing and having a good time just by myself in the theater. I saw it opening weekend and people were having like a vocal positive reaction to it. Even though it's like a really dumb movie, just like the way it plays with like people getting caught cheating or like being forced by the game to have sex with other people's partners and stuff. The crowd was like vocally cheering them on or booing and stuff. And it was like a really fun horror crowd experience. Yeah, I've been trying to tell people to check it out just because like, it's fun. You just go in with a certain set of expectations and it lives up to it. How'd you and, feel about that first half hour? I mean, it was so janky and yeah, <laughs> like the whole thing, the whole mythology of the story, like the Mexican, um, it's like an abandoned church. church. And when they find out the history of like how it's cursed and all that, I mean, it's just a bunch of bullshit, but it, does, <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's yeah. like, you got to sit through about 20 minutes of, exposition it's pretty cringy and then when you get to the goods yeah when the game actually starts it's just like a thrill ride it doesn't quit like you said like the ending is just as good as anything else in the movie and just keeps building and building to that like ridiculous payoff uh, yeah no I, I really enjoyed it and that 
that is like something that I would not have seen if it wasn't for the movie Pass. Yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> so that one and like you. Mom and Dad are like the two like goofy genre movies I really fell in love with this year. Well, I just saw that that is on uh, Amazon mm-hmm. now, so I I'm gonna watch that this weekend probably. So yeah, Overlook brought you know kind of goofy stuff like that. Like they premiered Puppet Master here, and they had like artsier stuff like Hereditary. What number Puppet Master are they on? I feel like they've uh, don't made... Don't quote me on this, but I believe it's 10. 10? And it's also like kind of a reset button, or it's like a different timeline than the other sequels. Because usually in other Puppet Master movies, the puppets are fighting Nazis, and in this version, the puppets are Nazis, and they're targeting like others who are oh, not shit. Aryans. Yeah, it's really fucked up. That's... <laughs> uh, and it's written by the guy, S. Craig Zoller, who did Bone Tomahawk and Brawl on Cell Block 99. Okay. Uh, so he's got kind of like this like brutal, kind of like almost right-wing macho vibe to him in general. And he wrote this like nasty, politically incorrect Puppet Master movie as well. I want to see it. It sounds nuts. Uh, and it's supposed to be like brutally violent. I mean, I'm on board. I've seen, and we've watched a lot of the Puppet Masters. Mm-hmm. I think I've seen about five or six of them. I bought at Rouse's, the grocery store, I bought the first nine for like four bucks. It's <laughs> like Jesus. four disc <laughs> set. What a deal. Yeah. <laughs> so if you ever want to delve into those. Um, God, nine movies for four bucks? That's the Charles Band special up. right there. <laughs> right. So truth be told, I submitted a request for Swamp Flicks to get a press pass for uh, Overlook and I was denied. So despite that, I wanted to sort of like... I knew I was going to be able to afford like a real pass to the festival and I wanted to sort of encourage them to come back. And they were asking through New Orleans Film Society for a lot of volunteers and saying that they didn't have a lot of, enough manpower to like make the festival go off smoothly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I ended up volunteering for a shift at the Bourbon Orleans Hotel and it ended up being this like really goofy like happenstance where I was just working the door at live recordings of two podcasts I listened to anyway. The first one was The Canon. Thomas Lennon was in there talking about Exorcist 3. Uh, so I was like just letting people in and like listening at the door. Fucking cool. Udo Kier uh, oh, crashed right? the recording. I got to tell him, like, have a good morning. And... What? <laughs> yeah. That's cool, man. And what else happened? Oh yeah, and the second recording was Shockwaves, which is actually like the best horror podcast mm-hmm. I can name. Like it's the best weekly listen I have as far as like horror goes. I got to talk to one of the hosts of that show and uh, listen to him interview Barbara Crampton and a few other directors who were there at the festival. Nice, dude. So that was my, like, volunteer work. That was not a problem at all. networking, man. That's what's up. I mean, I didn't promote myself or anything. I just kind of, like, said hello. Like, I like your work, pretty much. Yeah. It was very congenial. That's cool. I did manage to see three movies while I was there at the festival. I didn't want to waste that opportunity on stuff I knew was going to come out later Mm -hmm. uh, at theaters. So I didn't go see Hereditary. Uh, I didn't go see Unfriended. Uh, I picked out three foreign language horror films directed by women, which all seemed like they were probably not going to screen on the big screen mm-hmm. when they come to New Orleans. So look out for these on like VOD in the next few months, probably. Uh, the first one I saw was called Good Manners. And it's the one I most recommend as like kind of a low-key gem of the year. Mm-hmm. Like it's a movie that I, I think might fly under a lot of people's radars. I feel like I'm going to have to like sort of support it for the rest of the year and like evangelize for it. It's this very long sort of pensive creature feature. And the first half, this nanny moves into this, like, wealthy lady's house at the uh, edge of Sao Paulo in Brazil. The nanny's black and her employer is white, and it's just the two of them alone in this house. The employer is pregnant and needs her to do increasing amounts of stuff, 
Like, it's not like, I'm here to watch after your children. It's like, oh, all of a sudden I have to cook and clean for you. And then, because the pregnant woman keeps feeling all these weird pains in her body that doctors aren't taking seriously, the nanny starts having, like, a more intimate, like, physical relationship with her. And then that turns romantic <laughs> from there. Weird. And it just gets stranger and stranger. And then the birth itself turns into this, like, body horror moment where this creature is revealed. And I don't want to say what it is, because it's technically a spoiler, but you know before it happens what's going on. Just from years of hearing, like, horror lore and, like, seeing enough creature feature movies, you know exactly what monster is going to show up. But the way the movie handles it is so strange and unusual and, like, weirdly intimate that you wouldn't really expect... It's a squid, isn't it? (laughs) It's not a squid. (laughs) (laughs) And then, after the creature finally appears, and the pregnancy narrative, like, reaches its end, the movie jumps seven years in the future and deals with the consequence. And that's the second half of the film. Cool, man. Really strange way of dealing with this kind of stuff. But I I highly recommend checking out Good Manners. It's actually, like, one of my favorite movies I've seen all year. The next day, I saw this movie, Tigers Are Not Afraid. Uh, Okay, I've heard of that. This is also, like, a sort of dark fantasy piece, like the first one. It's very del toro and it's like vibes, and I think Del Toro's even endorsed it on Twitter as being like one of the best movies he's seen in a while. This one's about kids navigating this like emptied city along the border of Mexico, and all these drug cartels have basically murdered and kidnapped and erased their families. So the children are sort of abandoned behind by all the adults that have been like wiped out by this drug cartel, and it takes the idea of the border city being like a ghost town. To like a literal degree, like the mm. ghosts of all the people the drug cartel have killed are behind and only the kids can kind of see them. And like even their own dead parents and dead family members are calling out to them for like vengeance. And the kids mm. sort of like wage a war themselves on the, the gangsters that have like ruined their cities. I did like this one a good bit. It sort of lays all its cards out on the table in like the first five minutes though. Like there's an opening scrawl that tells you drug cartels have run over these cities in Mexico They've left them ghost towns, and then the first scene is like a school classroom. It's a creative writing assignment to create your own fairy tale. So sort of in those first two minutes, you sort of like get the whole scope of what the movie has in mind. But uh, the movie does have kind of like a, uh, you know, Florida Project, George Washington, City of Lost Children vibe, where it's like the kids are sort of left on their own to like rebuild society in these like sort of like weird shanty towns. And the mixture of fantasy and reality is, like, really blurred. There's all this, like, animated graffiti of, like, tigers that they spray paint on walls to protect themselves. And at the same time, this, like, really violent contrast comes through where, like, the violence from the drug dealer's end is really, like, grotesque. So you get this, like, sort of child's imagination interrupted by this, like, really grotesque bloodshed. It's a really good, like, dark fantasy piece, especially if you really like Guillermo del Toro's stuff. Uh, definitely recommend that one, too. It sounds like his... Um... His, like, earlier The Devil's stuff. Backbone, for Devil's sure. Backbone. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Children in a war-torn country and... He's only really made two ghost movies, right? Like, he made Devil's Backbone and Crimson Peak. I can't think of any other ghost stories he's told. But Devil's Backbone is what it reminded me most of. Yeah, and that yeah, one's that a lot good. of, like, kids, like, in a war-torn city existing on their own outside of authority figures. Even though those are still alive in that, in that story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for the most part. And the last one I saw is actually sort of similar to good manners in that revealing the monster at the center of it would be kind of a spoiler it's called blue my mind and blue is the color it's Mm b-l-u-e my mind it's a swedish horror film and it's one of those coming of age femme uh stories about like 
a girl who gets her period for the first time while she's like attending a new school and along with this like physiological change she starts transforming into this like new creature oh i saw i saw a trailer for that you did I, recently yeah was it good i really liked it yeah okay. i'm trying to think of other films to compare it to it's kind of like a you know like a teenager in crisis film like this girl is venturing outside of her parents protection to hang out with these like new kids uh, kind of like the movie Girlhood we saw, that French drama last year. She's, like, smoking drugs and having sort of, like, casual sex and shoplifting and doing all these, like, delinquent teenage, like, right. acting out transgressions. And then, at the same time, she's hiding this, like, changing body from the world. And she's transforming into a creature that, again, like Good Manners, you know what it is before it happens. But the reveal is so late in the film that I wouldn't want to, like, spoil it for anybody. But it's pretty obvious and we've so, seen movies like this before, like Ginger Snaps and Jennifer's Body and these other, like, femme coming-of-age transformation stories. Like Raw. Raw, definitely, yeah. Mm -hmm. And the difference here is it's just a new monster type that we haven't seen in this context before. It's a whale, isn't it? It is aquatic. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I seriously was just throwing shit at the wall. And the whole movie looks aquatic. There's a lot of really? stuff about fish, okay. and it's like kind of this blue tint, and they live by the shore. Okay. That's part of its DNA, for sure. Cool. Yeah, I liked all three movies I saw. Like, it was a really, really rewarding festival, even with that small selection. Like, I'm sure I could have seen all different other kinds of movies, but I saw a lot of, like, artsy-fartsy, like, female director, sort of indie stuff there. Which is the kind of stuff that's really exciting to see on the big screen. Because otherwise it's just going to be like on Amazon Prime or something. Right, you don't really have a chance to see it in that setting. Yeah, just like one of the best feelings I've had in the movie theater in a while was walking out of Good Manners. And you know, it's kind of a talkative festival because all these like nerds are in from out of town and they like are having a good time. And they're like, hey, what are you seeing today and stuff. Mm -hmm. Walking out of Good Manners, everyone's just kind of shaking their head like, I, I don't even know what to say about that. Which is like such a great oh, yeah. feeling. So yeah, that's the first half of the spring cleaning. I, I've gotten that one festival out of the way. Oh my goodness. The second festival on the docket is we're going to be talking about French Film Fest in New Orleans. It was in February at Britannia Theater, and Cece and I saw over a dozen movies there, which <gasps> was nuts, <laughs> in like a week. So and there was actually one I missed on the big screen, but I had seen it three times before, because <laughs> it's on Netflix. Right. And I uh, wanted you to watch that for today anyway, so we'll do that for as a movie in a minute, and then it's sort of getting to the rest of the festival, just me and Cece later on. Yeah. All right. All that's coming up to you right, right now. And it was my first period film, and I was a little scared of being very much disconnected from the contemporary world. And uh, so I really said to myself, I have to, to, to go back to a contemporary film just after. And my feeling of contemporary world at that moment was something that was so tense that it would explode. So my first images were images of explosions. And now it's time for our regular Movie the Minute segment. This is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. Uh, and this is a movie I actually recommended to James back when we did our honorable mentions for the best of 2017. It was in my top 20 for the year. And it was kind of a small movie that sort of popped up on Netflix without much fanfare. But you would see it pop up on, like, critics' lists, mm -hmm. uh, even though it didn't really have a lot of buzz behind it. Uh, it's called Nocturama. It's a French film that actually screened at this year's New Orleans French Film Fest. And I wish I had seen it on the big screen, because it is a very, like, visually arresting film. But I, I'd, you know, I'd seen it too many times at home before to, like, justify skipping some other movie to go see it instead. Right. Just going to do a basic plot synopsis. 
the movie's split in half. The first half of the film, you see this like disparate group of teens navigating public transit in Paris. And it's a very long dialogue light sequence where these kids are performing these like sort of mysterious but very mundane tasks of like dropping off these packages, throwing away these cell phones, not talking to each other but visually recognizing in each other's eyes like what part of the mission is next. And Occasionally text messages. Yeah, but we don't see the message on screen, do we? Yeah, you do. You do? Sometimes it will just kind of pop up, but it's usually it's very, very minimal. And at first it seems like almost every teen in Paris is in on whatever plot this is. But by the time you get to the end of it, you're like, oh, it's maybe about a dozen kids, maybe less. And about halfway into the movie, it feels like, you finally get a sense of what they're working towards. So you spend almost the first hour in silence watching these kids navigate the streets of Paris. And their goal together is to set off these bombs in this sort of like organized terror attack. Once the bombs go off, the second half of the movie starts, which is very clearly divided, and they hide out in this shopping mall after hours. So everyone's been sending home from the shopping mall because the city's on like security alert. And uh, one of their own has secured the shopping mall for them to hide from police scrutiny until the morning comes when they're supposed to disperse. In the shopping mall, you don't really get a sense of why they committed this act of terror. It's this sort of vague dissatisfaction with like capitalist society. They can't find a job and there's some flashbacks, especially one scene where one of the characters talks about like a history uh, exam he had to took and what he wrote his essay on and you get kind of this vague sense of why he might have been motivated to do it but it, it's very um not clear yeah about why they did this in the first place it reminded me a lot of the film the educators it's like a mid-2000s german film i don't know if you ever saw that with daniel Bruhl. Mm-hmm. uh it's these like kids break into rich people's homes and like steal and break their shit but it's for this like very vague like anti-capitalist philosophy that once they kidnap one of the rich people and hold them for ransom, the guy starts questioning, like, okay, why are you doing this? Like, what's your philosophy behind this? And they really don't have an answer. It's like this sort of, like, vague dissatisfaction. And that was something that I thought works really well in the film and makes it a little terrifying, mm-hmm. is that they don't have an ideology. Usually with terrorists, we always want to know, like, why did they do it? And usually, you know, it's for jihad or... Whatever we can find some answer, but with these kids, like there really is no concrete reason why they're doing this heinous act. And I think that's why the movie could be frustrating if you're not on its wavelength. Is the first half is very quiet. You're not even sure what they're doing. Then you get clued in halfway through, like oh, they're blowing up Paris, and then you don't get a reason why. After you just watch them rot in this like mall, mall, which is. A very clever reflection of the capitalist system they're supposedly bucking against. But it's not like there's any sort of resolution at the end of that. It's more just waiting for the whole thing to collapse around them. And sort of like a Day of the Dead, like, zombie invasion. Like, the cops are this, like, outside force that are enclosing closer and closer in as they're just wasting their time. Not really doing anything or resolving any issues that they may have had with society at large. Mm -hmm. What I thought was interesting about this movie and why I wanted you to see it is that we often talk about how there aren't many ways to shock people at this point as far as like moviegoers go. 
Mm-hmm. There's aren't many places left for the modern audience to see something they've never seen before or have their sensibilities like shocked. We praised We Are the Flesh a lot last year for that same purpose. Mm-hmm. I think this one does a similar thing, but through different, very different means because it's a political movie. But it's stubbornly political in that it's invoking these like modern terror attacks on like London and Paris, but with this very empty purpose without any like emotional release. Well, and that's that's what I thought was so fascinating about this movie is that it it's like aggressively political but also n- aggressively not political at the same time. Like you said, we never truly understand why they did it. So we don't understand their politics, but them not having a purpose for what they're doing, it, I felt was kind of the whole point in the way that I think Younger people are stuck in this capitalist system and they hate it. They want out, but they also kind of love it. Like the second half of the movie where they're in the mall, there's even a few lines of dialogue where they say explicitly like, this is heaven. This is all we want. Like to be able to dress in designer clothes and all the food we want and wine. And so there's a weird cognitive dissonance. It's like they're fighting against this thing, but they also revel in it at the same time. And that's, what I thought was like kind of interesting. Yeah, one of the main kids who's like the most like fervently into this idea of like we need to set off these bombs to like wake up society. One of the first things that happens to him in the mall is he walks into this Nike exhibit and he yeah. sees a mannequin dressed exactly Just like, like him. him. He's wearing the, the exact clothes. Yeah. And there's no comment on what's happening in that moment. He just sort of stops and stares at this like reflection of himself. Like I'm already in the system, like, I can't even separate myself from this thing that I'm supposed to hate. And someone even says among them, like, we should have blown this place up, too. But like you said, they, like, have fun indulging in it. So that was one thing that kept coming into focus as I watched it was, like, I couldn't quite wrap my head around is the movie criticizing, like, youth culture and sort of placing the blame on them? Or is it placing the blame on society as a whole? Because on the one hand, it's like, they're doing this heinous political act, but they don't really know why. And it seems to be saying, like, young people nowadays, they're, like, very vocal, but they don't really believe anything. Like, they don't have an ideology, but they're very vocal and outward about how they feel, but they don't actually, like, truly believe anything. They know they're dissatisfied with the system that's in place, but they don't have a resolution for what should replace it, really. Yeah, so I didn't know if it was saying that, like putting the blame on the youth culture or saying like, no, society has made them this way. And maybe it's a little bit of both. I think ultimately it's a provocation in that it's evoking those conversations, Mm -hmm. but it's a very cold clinical movie that doesn't offer any sort of like easy answer to anything. Which is partly why that, like, evocation of real-life terror attacks that actually tear apart cities, like Paris, is so fucked up. Because it's like, you can't evoke that image and that feeling and that memory without a purpose. And the movie does that sort of nonchalantly. And it also changes the conversation around it by removing religious fanaticism and replacing it with this, like, philosophy that has no aim to it at all. It's these, like, sort of hip-looking kids who are different ethnic backgrounds and, like, different social economic backgrounds. Well, different ages, too. Like, some seem older than others. So you can't really pinpoint, like, a common purpose they might have or anything in common, really. Like, 
you get little glimpses of how they came together as a group, but it's still pretty vague. Yeah, their only common denominator is they all feel like they're being underserved by whatever political system is in place. I just want to ask you, like, going in blind, I'm assuming, not reading anything about it beforehand, yeah. like, what did you think about this movie as, like, a piece of entertainment? Because it's a very long movie that requires a lot of patience, and it's very quiet. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I'm as high on it as you are. I found it to be really intellectually stimulating. I'm still pretty high on it from just, like, watching it as, like, a film one thing we haven't mentioned is like the music so good is so good <laughs> and i think also the visuals kind of get across sort of what we're talking about like it is an art house movie but it's shot in a really stylish slick kind of way which seems to kind of tie into what we're talking about i do think it's a little too long it's very long and the the opening sequence actually kind of reminded me of um freakin's version of sorcerer where you watch Mm-hmm. The different criminals like commit these like terrible acts, and you don't know who they are or like what they have right. to do with each other. And then later in the film, you get to know them and like like how they got to be the like hardened assholes that they truly are. Yeah. Um. In this one, we don't know who these kids are. We just th- th- some of them are vaguely hip looking, but some of them are just normal teenagers. Yeah, I think it could have been maybe edited a little tighter, but I do think the conversations that it that arise and that intellectual stimulation you get from the film does kind of carry it through uh i don't i don't find it to be like a perfect film by any means but it's definitely worthy of discussion i think that's because it doesn't have such a clear way of talking about it it basically opens up this like sort of intellectual space and doesn't really put a button on it in any way that you can really like walk away from like feeling like you understand and that's partly why i've seen it three or four times Mm mm-hmm which is weird for me, because usually I'm the one that has no patience for this kind of, like, art house intellectual stuff. That's usually your bag. Right. But there's something about... Recently, people have been talking a lot about the divisions between television and film and how those are becoming blurred. And because of that, I've become more interested in movies that distinguish themselves and do things that television can never do. And like you were saying earlier, the imagery and the sound in this film are so distinctly cinematic in a way that I Mm -hmm. very much enjoy. The images are just so beautiful, and in a way that it's not even in service of the philosophy at the center of it sometimes. Like, a character wears a gold mask, and it just looks fucking cool, and that's why it's there. Or, like, one of the terror attacks... You know, a lot of them are, like, bombing office buildings and all these, like, sort of uh, politically pointed acts... Uh, you know, bomb a bank or something like that. One of the terror attacks is just lighting the golden statue of Joan of Arc on fire that's over by the Eiffel Tower. And we actually have a replica of that in the French Quarter, right where Decatur splits into two streets. Oh, yeah, that's It's right. the same exact statue. Yeah. So seeing that statue lit on fire, just this gold woman on horseback with this, like, French flag in flames. Like, yeah. I could just watch that image for, like, two fucking hours and never get bored of it. And I think that's what saves the movie is, like, how intense the images are. And then you mix in the pop music. They uh, introduce Chief Keef and fucking yeah. Willow Smith. Like, there's, like, sort of, like, frivolous pop music on top of this, like, indulgent imagery. And actually the director, uh, Bertrand Bonello, he did the other synthy score, like, the sort of, like, dance music score that's mm-hmm. not pop music. So he, on top of directing and writing this movie, also scored it, which is a lot of shit to fucking handle for one person. Um, and I feel like... It's the same thing as the Capitalist Mall being this, like, sort of entertainment spectacle for the kids. For us, 
yeah, it's this slow-moving philosophical art piece, but at the same time, it's this, like, basic indulgence in, like, sight and sound. What? And I think that's the meditative aspect. Even though it's slick-looking, it's still art house in the sense that the story and the characters have room to breathe. And when you do that, like, you have more time to kind of think about the themes and what's actually going on. On the one hand, if it was like an hour and 20 minute thing that was edited with an inch of its life, like that would might be a more pleasurable viewing experience. But having it be a little long winded and drawn out makes you like think more about these things. Like you're just kind of watching these images and the sounds and it puts you in a certain space that uh, allows you to deeply think about some of this stuff. I think the 90 minute version of this movie would be the planning stage where they like all meet in this one it looks like a hotel room or something yeah and they dance to disco they have like a disco dance party in the middle of it and then the bomb setting up portion of the film would be the second act which sort of feels like a heist picture and then maybe like the third act would be the fallout in the uh hotel Uh, and instead what you get is this sort of like jumbled sprawling mess where it's like a deconstructed heist picture where you get these like sort of like snapshots of where the movie could be assembled into like a straightforward narrative. Yeah. But instead it's sort of picked apart and like examined almost like a dead body or something. That's something I loved about this movie was the use of flashbacks. Cause a lot of times you'll get flashbacks that just go back a couple minutes. So you just see like the action from a different angle or get a little more context for a scene. It's a little disorienting. You're like jumping back just a few minutes and then you're jumping forward in time. But that's something I, I really liked about this as well. And since the movie's like such an indulgence in like sights and sounds, I feel like I can spoil the ending a little bit in saying that the ending has a similar fractured and repetitive narrative to it where after hanging out in this mall in this like night of the comet dawn of the dead sort of like horror hangout waiting for like the cops to come in and like ruin their experience that eventually does happen and like the law doesn't close in on them but you get it through this repetitive security cam footage where you see the same act of them being shut down by the law from multiple angles different angles yeah and it reminded me of like cubism in that it's like one picture assembled from different perspectives to the point where there's like almost too much information for your brain to even process, even though it's all like a very simple act. And with the sound too, in the last act where they're basically getting gunned down by the police, you hear gunshots and you know like someone is getting killed. And that keeps happening. Like a character will hear a gunshot. You don't know where it's coming from, but you know that means death for someone. And then we'll see like, security cam footage or or maybe it's a flashback to like a couple minutes and you see it from a different angle you get the context for like who got shot under what circumstance and i don't know it gives you this weird vibe of like encroaching death that's the thing with the cops at the end it i don't know if it was trying to make a political statement because a lot of these kids are like putting up their hands they're defenseless and they're still getting killed but they're also responsible for a lot of death and destruction themselves. Right, right. but when I was watching those scenes, I kind of thought about the United States' response to terrorism. How will drone bomb some village and probably kill quite a few innocent people and it's like very brutal and cold. But it is a response 
to a very revolting act. So it's like harsh violence responding to harsh violence. And that's kind of how I took the ending. Like the police officers, when they come in, they're just very cold and calculated and they just annihilate. And as pointless as the kids' violence feels, sometimes like philosophically, the cops' violence at the end is very pointless. Yeah. Like you said, it's cold and it's calculated, but People it also... Are, they're just putting up their hands right. defenseless and they still get shot. And as you see detailed throughout the film characters involvement in the actual bombing varies like some kids actually went through with it some didn't and went to the hideout in the mall anyway and it really doesn't matter in the end what they did or what they didn't do like they still get the same brunt of the law at the end it becomes numbing like to see it over and over again from different angles uh, even though at least once we get to the mall sequence we can start to get to know these kids as individual personalities none of that matters at the end there's sort of like taken care of as if they're like just you know dotting the i's and crossing the t's like filling out paperwork it's harrowing as far as the ending one thing i did want to mention i thought the last lines of dialogue in this film pretty much for me summed up the whole experience of watching it the last two lines of dialogue are like we're in heaven and that's repeated and then it's helped me so that to me is kind of the theme of the movie wrapped up kind of nicely just like they're in the mall they're in the the peak of capitalism like we're in heaven like we have access to all this great shit but then there's this darker undercurrent of just like help me this sucks this is awful i want out and that that's kind of how i took this group of terrorists what their motives were like they're conflicted they don't have any direction and they're just acting out in a really violent way because I don't know. There's just this inner turbulence, I guess. I thought those last lines of dialogue really like summed up their feelings in general. So I know this movie's like a time commitment, right? And it's a patient commitment. Like you have to like sort of give it your attention for a very long amount of time mm-hmm. without a lot of immediate payoffs. But I heard you mention earlier in the episode that Ebert had to watch Cachet three times before like fully getting. He found the, the smoking gun. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like this is a movie that would benefit from multiple viewings? Like, could you return to this and find more in it? Or do you feel like you already got everything that it had to offer? I'd watch it again. Especially because, like, I've been listening to this New York Times podcast called Caliphate, which is about ISIS. And they actually find a guy that moved from Canada over to the Middle East and, like, joined ISIS. And then he came back. And so they're asking him about his, like, motivations like why did you go and you realize like it's not it's not because he's like an evil psychopath it's just he feels lost and he wants to give himself to a A purpose a purpose bigger than himself so yeah while i was watching this movie i kept thinking about the interviews with him and this podcast and wouldn't it roger ebert that said movies are like empathy machines kind of like i did find myself empathizing a little bit with terrorists in the sense that I could understand being so lost and having no purpose to where this alternative might seem valid to give yourself to like a higher cause. That's like I felt with the kids in this movie. They're completely lost in this capitalist system and they're just doing terrorist acts because they don't know what else to do. That's another like thought that kept popping up for me. I think the reason I've seen it so many times, besides it being, like, readily available on Netflix, which just makes it easy to pop on, is that, like, 
on top of that sort of like philosophy, like provocation, and the movie is like very deliberately provocative in a way I could see someone sort of dismissing, like in a sort of a juvenile way. But we like we like provocateurs, I think. You and me. Oh yeah. Uh, besides like that whole philosophical sphere, there's also just these like basic pleasures. That I think is what keeps drawing me back in. Like there's this like drag routine set to my oh, way. Oh, I love that. Oh, that was like definitely one of my favorite scenes. Or just the roommate from Raw who was also in Girlhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, him dancing to Chief Keef. That's that shit I don't like. I could watch that yeah. scene so many times. So the movie like sort of plays both sides of your brain. Like it has these sort of like base image and sound pleasures. Even though it is actually like this really like mentally difficult experience to have to like relive several times i think that's kind of how the movie works as a whole it's like this visceral level with just the music and the visuals and then also like stimulates the intellect too which is like pretty hard to do usually i think movies kind of go one way or the other What is so, so good for a filmmaker is to feel that I'm not forgotten, my films are not forgotten, and that there is a possibility for new people, young people, directors, to see films different. And since I never repeated myself, it was not my desire, so I've been going in direction that they can grab something if it fits them. And for our feature conversation, we're going to be discussing the movies we saw at this year's New Orleans French Film Fest. Uh, It was the 21st annual New Orleans French Film Fest. And joining me for the conversation is Cece Chapman. Bonjour. (laughs) (laughs) Oui, oui. Oui, oui. You've kind of become our, like, unofficial or official festival correspondent at this point. That is true. That is Uh, true. I I go to all the festivals. Usually we cover New Orleans Film Fest proper on this podcast, but we honestly see more, like a higher percentage of films at French Film Fest. That's true. I mean, they don't show as many films. They might show 12, not counting the shorts, over eight days. Whereas New Orleans Film Fest, I think, you know, is like 100 films. All over the downtown area. Yeah, so there's a lot more travel involved. Also, they're not free. We get we each can watch six of them during New Orleans Film Fest, but we can watch any as many as we want during French Film Fest. So it's really just like how much time do we want to take off work to watch movies? Yeah, and this time we saw ten out of seventeen of the features they played, which is a pretty high percentage of it. But we've been we've been pushing it more and more every year though. Yeah, Uh, and I like this one. It's like all at Britannia. It's really easy and like. Mm I guess after like a week, the monotony of going back to the same place over and over again gets kind of grating. Like it was just wearing me down towards the end. Britannia has its limitations. Seating is kind of difficult there since it's not like very stadium. Uh, They're not very uh, stacked. And then, you know, every time we're at Britannia, someone drops their cell phone. (laughs) And so you can just kind of just wait for that to happen during the movie. Like you can't even focus on the movie until it happens really. So like, I don't know. It has its limitations, but... It's nice. It's comforting. And it's in that cute little neighborhood. You can, like, go and get a bottle of wine beforehand at the cheese store. Like, so Mm -hmm. French. And I always see one or two movies that are, like, some of the best movies I see all year at French Film Fest. Like, it's not quite as, like, out there and um, varied as the stuff you see at the proper film fest. But 
there's always like one or two movies that like really get to me somewhere in what we program for ourselves. Absolutely. The first movie we saw at the festival isn't really exactly one of the standouts, but it was a pretty good warm-up. Yeah, it was a solid first film for the French Film Fest. It was, uh, I think, the second film. Uh, it was the first one of the Saturday. I think they showed one film the night beforehand. Yeah, we missed opening um, night. Uh, this is a biopic. It's called Marie Curie, The Courage of Knowledge. It's not a traditional birth-to-death like Wikipedia synopsis biopic of Marie Curie's life. It's more... This, like, five-year span between her two Nobel Prize wins. Uh, she was the first woman to ever win a Nobel Prize. And the first woman to... First person. Yeah, and then the first person to win two. Yeah. Ever. And then her family ended up being this, like, dynasty. Like, her, her kid won a Nobel after her. And her husband won the first one with her in tandem uh, for their work on uh, discovering radium and researching radiation. Mm-hmm. Trying to cure cancer, I believe. Yeah, they were hoping to use it as a cure for cancer, and it was one of the early treatments for cancer. Radiation therapy, I believe, is still used to some extent, but very limited, uh, because obviously radiation can uh, have its drawbacks. Yeah, it's kind of interesting to watch someone try to cure cancer with something that I know to cause cancer. I'm not very science literate. It it causes a type of anemia, and it can cause bones to dissolve. I I think it can cause some types of tumors, but it doesn't flat out cause, like, just general, like, cancer. It's It's just not good for you though to be around radiation it can increase your chance of getting cancer down the line it'll kill you through other things yeah, i know that from like the crew of like stalker uh filming in those like locations like they all like later in life died earlier than they probably should have from yeah. uh whatever was, exposure. and also like pollution and stuff and yeah. that too like they were exposed to a lot of different chemicals that they weren't supposed to be exposed to it not necessarily even radiation and one of the first surprises in this movie to me is like her and her husband are working in tandem on this radium discovery uh, and he starts to get anemic from exposure to radium, and he like coughs a bunch, and he's even diagnosed like vocally, verbally with anemia. And you kind of expect him to get sick and die from that, and instead he dies in this like freak carriage accident, uh, which I did not expect. Yeah, Just no. Go- usually in a film, like they give you the v- visual clue of somebody coughing into a handkerchief and there's spots of blood, and then they die of illness. Instead. The next scene, he dies because he gets run over by a horse. It always looks like it's the first time they've ever used that handkerchief. It's always like the starkest white handkerchief. Mm-hmm. And you get like the three perfect specks of blood on it. Yeah. That is the first wrench in, like the first complication in her life that you see in this five-year span. It later becomes apparent why they picked that one period in her life. Because you get kind of like a quick rundown of like why she's important um, very early on. You see her and her husband working in the lab together. That part feels very like montage heavy. It's mm-hmm. not exactly cinematic, but it, it's nice to look at uh, as just like a period piece of like watching this woman like do science. Yeah. What the movie's really focused on though later is that she falls in love with a married man who also worked on the same project with, with her and her husband. There's a little bit of drama derived from her trying to establish her own place in the world as a scientist once he's gone and like earn like a professorship and like earning respect and continuing the radium research that these other scientists want to treat like a fad. But the movie gets most of its like traditional drama and conflict out of this like very public affair when she gets caught in this like adulterous relationship. Yeah, there there was talk that perhaps she shouldn't get a second Nobel Prize because she was sleeping with a married man. I think they described it when they were introducing the film as, this isn't so much a biopic of Marie Curie the scientist, 
but the biopic of Marie Curie, the woman. <laughs> and I, I think that was an apt description um, because, you know, her life wasn't all science. She was a human of flesh and blood and of passions. And they did, you know, want to depict that accurately, which I thought was interesting. It was very French of them to decide to focus on that. Although, ironically, this was not necessarily, it was a French co-production, but Marie Curie, as some of you may not know, was actually Polish. And so uh, Poland is also very, very proud of her and her achievements. So this was actually a Polish co-production. The woman who played Marie Curie was a Polish woman who spoke French and... I believe the director was also Polish and a woman. Yeah, it's one of the only, um, you know, we tracked like, the 52 Films by Women mm-hmm. uh, project. And besides the Agnes Varda films that later played in the festival, she was the only other female director that we ended up programming for ourselves. Wow. Yeah, it kind of sucks, but <laughs> we saw 10 movies out of 17 of them. But Hey, some of them were during the day. They made all the women have the during the day films when I'm at work, <laughs> okay? That's just rude. But I could see how somebody going to this biopic would be like kind of, Maybe not insulted, but like rubbed the wrong way about like, oh, this is a very important female scientist, like one of the ones only ones history's actually like gone out of its way to recognize. And then you have a lot of these scenes of like her naked in a bathtub or having <laughs> sex with this yeah. this man, and it becomes and she gets like threatened at knife point and called a whore by his his wife. Uh, I mean, that was just kind of funny though. Yeah, I mean, that Marie Curie got threatened by rightfully jealous, angry wife who's like. My husband's going to leave me because of you. Why, why are you trying to ruin me, Marie Curie? You're already famous. And Marie Curie's like, look, man, I just like this guy. I'm sorry. She also calls her a uh, lab rat, which I thought was a really funny insult. That was a hilarious insult. But I think it works better as a movie for doing that. Like, it's a little tabloidish, uh, but it was just fun to watch this, like, kind of steamy costume drama that mixed, like, science and sex. Yeah, it was like... Hey, we can't get people interested enough in the science because, heck, it's boring and none of us understand it. But, hey, we got some pretty titties for you to look at. (laughs) It's like, okay, I see where you're going for. Um, You know, I I understand the criticism that it's belittling her legacy to have this biopic, you know, depict her as a person. But then I think also, like, we kind of deify women in history to the point where they don't seem like people anymore. They're like the cipher. They're this, this thing that we put expectations on so like of course Maria Curie would never masturbate she was too busy thinking about radium all the time and it's like well she was also a, a person like I, I don't because I'm also a person like just because I masturbate doesn't mean like I can't like find a cure to cancer <laughs> or do radio radiation therapy like or like discover something or get a Nobel Prize like I, th- I think keeping her human is kind of important it does the same thing for Einstein too is just like just kind of this bumbling guy with like a dry sense of humor And he, like, openly flirts with her throughout the movie as well. Yeah, they get to meet at, like, this, like, retreat for scientists. And the other people are being really, like, rude to her and belittling. And he's like, you do realize you're all dumb in comparison to her. Like, (laughs) I'm the only person in the room who's as smart as she is. Like, all of you guys are super dumb. I kind of think of Einstein as, like, this caricature, like a dorm room poster making a silly face kind of guy. Yeah. Uh, So, like, seeing him act like a human, seeing her act like a human, it, it is, like, a good reset button there. But we also don't have movies where, like, Einstein is seductively, like, lounging in a bathtub either. No, we don't. Weird. Hmm. Yeah. It's the only lady scientists who get those movies. Yeah, yeah it, maybe if there was more dong in the world in general, uh, yeah. it wouldn't feel as icky. Yeah, no, I want to see I want to see young Einstein, you know? And maybe young Karl Marx is a sex scene. We haven't seen that one yet, so <laughs> let's find out if young Karl Marx used to, you know, just sit around naked, like, thinking about how he can come up with a better economic system. But... 
Honestly, if this was like a whole like birth to death biopic, we would not have been as interested in it. No. Well, I mean, I didn't know what it was exactly when I walked yeah. in, and I was still interested, so... Yeah, maybe so. But like, okay, when they're in bed, and he calls her like a beaming radium goddess, <laughs> that kind of like pillow talk, where they're like still mixing the science in like with the pillow talk, I love that so much. Dorks. Yeah. <laughs> Nerds. But yeah, it's pretty good. Like, if you want to watch like a costume drama... Middle of the afternoon kind of stuff. I, I liked it a lot. It's a mid-afternoon movie, you know? You go, you have lunch at St. James Cheese, you watch this on the couch. Maybe if it's raining that day, I think that would, that would really help because the early part of the movie, there was a lot of rain going on. <laughs> uh, they have to deal with constant leaks because they decide to put a glass ceiling in their lab, like dummies. And they do like a cool like uh, music video moment right after her uh, husband dies and she's like trying to readjust to the new world. Uh, the rain starts falling backwards. Yeah. It's kind of a weird little, like, There was touch. a couple nice little, like, surreal visual flourishes in there that were kind of cool. The opening of the film looks like a completely different film because it's just, like, it's the ocean, and it's shot kind of, like, partially underwater and then also from above, and then you just see, like, bodies swimming in it, and you can't tell who the bodies are, so you can't tell if it's about Marie Curie, and also, you know, people back then wore, like, full sets of clothing to swim in, so it's really confusing. You kind of feel like you're watching like a much newer film at the very beginning until they get into the costume drama part. Yeah. And I appreciated some of those like little like off flourishes. Stylistic like, touches. Stylistic touches. They were fun. Yeah. Uh, the next day we saw a grueling amount of movies. <laughs> it was the most we saw. Few. Yeah. <laughs> we saw four movies in one day in the same theater. And it started the best way possible. It, we go every now and then to these Sunday morning screenings. Uh, that have been rebranded to be called the Rene Brunet's Classic Movie of the Week. Because the old programmer at the theater who used to introduce the movies on Sundays uh, recently passed away. And he was like the world's biggest sweetheart. They did this last year as well with Love in the Afternoon. But they, they rolled their Sunday morning programming during the festival into that same classic movie slot. Yeah. And this year they played Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless mm-hmm. uh, from 1960. And it was the first time I'd ever seen it. Ooh, I saw it in college. I don't know if I finished it. I know I've seen bits of it because, you know, I went through that phase in college where I saw all the French New Wave. But no, it was really beautiful seeing it on the big screen. Yeah, and it's pretty much like the most stereotypical French New Wave mm-hmm. film you could think of. I, like, think, I think if you want to encapsulate what the French New Wave is, I think, or at least the, the right bank French New Wave, I think that Breathless is a very good yeah. example. You have a lot of handheld shots that like, kind of make it feel a little dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's black and white. The main character chain smokes throughout like these mm-hmm. impossibly large cigarettes. And it's got like this like nihilistic anti-hero sensibility to it. Yes, he's like the American bad guy. He he loves the American bad guy in the movies, <laughs> like the Humphrey Bogart and the gangsters, you know. And he's very, very, you know, braggadocio and swaggering. And that's kind of what's interesting about the French New Wave. It's like a cultural Ouroboros where like they were heavily influenced by American gangster films. And then we sort of re- appropriated that later with the uh, new Hollywood movement that came with like Bonnie and Clyde and stuff later. Uh, So this movie feels a lot like what would later come in America in the Mm seventies. But at the same time, it makes this like character who's a total asshole and admits that he's an asshole up front. It's like the first line in the movie. It makes him look cool in this way. That's like kind of gross. Like I the whole time was like, he is such a fucking piece of shit. (laughs) And then he'd do something and be like, ha ha ha, look at him go. He was charming. And yet I was like, no, he's a bad person. He's a charming but bad person. 
I think it's kind of like a Fight Club thing where like the joke is on him, and it's kind of like making fun of him for being this like misogynist, arrogant prick. Yeah, uh, definitely. But I feel like if you're young and like watch it the wrong way, you could like get the wrong lesson from it. He's so dreamy. I hope all the guys I date are as big of <laughs> assholes as him. Oh. So the plot is it's a womanizing car thief. He accidentally gets into a uh, situation where he scrambles and kills a cop. Like, he gets kind of backed into a corner while stealing a car and shoots a police officer in the woods. And everyone knows it's him. And the cops are looking for him in Paris. There's actually a few shots of the Eiffel Tower, which was kind of a good uh, top of the fest. Oh, we're in Paris now. Um, We are in France. This is the French (laughs) film fest. Don't forget. So while he's evading the cops, he's basically bouncing around all these different women uh, who he, you know, steals small amounts of money from and pesters into sleeping with him. Mostly, he's focused on this one American woman who's a little standoffish at first, and we find out later why. She's trying to gauge how, how much he's actually interested in her and how, how willing he is to like stick around if uh, things had to get a little more serious. This actually reminded me a lot of Pepe Le Pew, <laughs> which is <laughs> kind of a rude thing to say, but like the uh, sort of chasing a woman around when she says she's not interested and sort of like trying to seem cool and like pester her into bed. There's a uh, Max Landis Pepe Le Pew project that's apparently in development right now, and you could easily make that a cartoon version of Breathless without changing much. Yeah, no, I think I think honestly we need to send him that idea, or maybe if he's <laughs> listening to this podcast. You know, you're welcome for that idea because I think, honestly, the youth need to be introduced to Breathless at a young age. And I think through the vehicle of the magic of animation, I think that's very possible. <laughs> the movie's obviously aware of his shortcomings as like a Yeah, no, I, I, don't, I think Godard is very negative on him. I, I don't think he means for this guy to be valorized by any means. Like, he's supposed to be a bad guy. Uh, but at the same time, like, he's a very cool bad guy. He's, like, buffoonishly cool, though. Like, he's, like... Yeah, the joke's on him, but at the same time, the French New Wave itself, like, with, like, punk as well, you have these, like, movements that are supposed to be these, like, counterculture, bucking against the system, but they're all, like, male-dominated and sort of fall into the same old uh, patterns. And Godard himself is, like, kind of like a, you know, kind of a jerk. Conservative, yeah. Yeah. And he actually becomes sort of a villain in one of the movies we watched later in the fest. He did. Yeah. <laughs> so that was a good intro. I liked watching it. It was a lot of fun. It didn't feel like doing my homework or anything. It's like yeah, a fun, loose a fun, movie. Yeah. But yeah, the main character did rub me the wrong way. Maybe not in the way it was intended to sometimes. Yeah, yeah. He's a bad guy, but he's funny to watch. The next movie was a good counterpoint to that because it's such a femme, what would have been called in the 50s like a woman's picture. Uh, which was a good like antidote to the the breathless vibe. This was a new movie that's actually starting to make its way around like New York and um, Los Angeles and stuff right now. It's called Souvenir. Mm-hmm. Uh, every French film fest, you have a requirement that you have to watch one Isabelle Huppert movie. And this was it. For this us. was it for us. <laughs> and it falls into a very specific pattern of Isabelle Huppert movies in that it's Isabelle Huppert having sex with a person like a third her age and looking really great doing it. Classic Isabel. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually enjoyed this better than the movie I saw last year that would fit that exact description, uh, which was called Things to Come, which was a little more like dour and philosophically minded. This movie I felt was, I don't necessarily want to call it a rom-com, but it's both romantic and comedic. And it feels a little like uh, Muriel's Wedding and The Dressmaker and that kind of like 
fantastical femme comedy uh, with a lot of glitter and glam and like sugary pop to it. Yeah, like I feel like it was a little bit of a musical because music was a huge part of it, but I feel like it had the vibe of a musical despite not being a true musical. Isabelle Huppert is uh, this quiet woman who just wants to work out her days at this, you know, high-end pâté factory, which also made me desperately want to go work at a pâté factory in France because their living standards there, it looked great working there. And anyways, she gets paired alongside this young man who recognizes her. And he can't remember from where at first, but then he remembers that she was on TV once, representing France in like a Eurovision contest the year that ABBA won. So she <laughs> lost to ABBA. The Eurovision like song contest movie is its own genre as well. Like there's a bunch of comedies there's about. so many. Yeah. And they're usually French. Sometimes they're German. But like that is its, a whole subgenre of European film. But Huppert falling in love with this like 20-something boxer... And then singing these like sort of ABBA light pop songs directly for the camera elevates that genre for me. It was just like so fun to watch this movie. Yeah, no, the production values were great. The costumes were great. The acting was pretty good. Like it was like a very high end version of a much cheaper movie. And you would think that the stakes would be pretty low with like her flirting with this kid who's like way younger than her and... Um, him like recognizing her from this past she doesn't want to be recognized from you would think the stakes would be kind of low from there like but I feel like they do a really good job of like ringing a lot of like genuine dramatic beats from that when he doesn't show up for dinner on time and she makes a lobster dinner for two and is like left alone it's like devastating no I I, like teared up a little bit I was like man I just gotta eat all that fucking lobster by herself (laughs) so much lobster and he has these like little microaggressions where he like calls her out as being like Oh yeah, you were on that show. You were like ABBA, but not as good. (laughs) And that hurts her so deeply, even though it's like such a small slight. And then when you get to the moments where she's actually singing for the camera again and like revitalizing her career at this like young man's like enthusiastic behest, it looks really beautiful. Like it's basically Isabelle Huppert doing this like ABBA style karaoke and it's like really captivating. Yeah, she does like the like stylized arm movements to like act out the song in a way that's like very evocative. I don't know. It's, it's, it looks like a specific type of performance and I don't know the name of it. Like Chanteuse? <laughs> yeah, yeah, or even like, I'm thinking like Japanese theater almost, like the way she's like acting out the song as she's singing it. Yeah, she's not moving her body. She's no. not like dancing enthusiastically. No, she doesn't dance. She just moves her arms and like tilts and sways and like all of that helps tell the story in a really neat, fun way. And then the song she ends up like competing with is about... Her affair. Yeah. It's about like sleeping with a young sweet boy. With arms of uh, concrete. concrete. (laughs) I love this movie. I think it's really sweet. And like it's got this kind of candy coated, very symmetrical look to it. Almost like a Wes Anderson film. Mm -hmm. There's so many shots of pate like perfectly framed where even the factory itself kind of looks like the prison in Paddington 2 or something where it's like not even like that grim. No, it's not a grim factory at all. Again, I just want to go work at a factory in France now. I think I could, you know, put garnish on pâté all day and I would be fine doing that for the rest of my life. But yeah, if if you usually like avoid these like really heavy-handed Isabelle Huppert like dramas, this one is way more like Muriel's Wedding, like fun glamour and her like kind of having a good time with a genre she usually has to like go through some really heavy shit 
in. This is a much lighter version of that, and I enjoyed it more. Like, I feel like it's going to be less respected because it doesn't oh, yeah, go this places. Yeah, it's not getting great reviews. People think it's a lesser film, but I think it's because it's a feminine film that they don't like it. It's not serious TM enough for them. Totally agree with that. Well, the really great thing about this festival is being able to see, like, new movies and old movies together. Mm-hmm. They always do one retrospective during the course of the, f- the film festival where they pick, like, a director, and they show you several of the things from their oeuvre. Is that how you say it? I don't know. I don't know. My French is terrible. My French is way worse than yours. Uh, last year they did Jacques Demy. Uh, they played The Umbrellas of Cherbourg and The Young Girls of Rochefort, which were both fantastic to see, big and Absolutely, loud. Absolutely, yeah. And they were gorgeous. The re- they were recent restorations. They looked so nice. And, and in a kind of like natural progression, this year they did another um, French New Wave auteur, one who was actually married to Jacques Demy for a long time. Until his death. Until his death. And someone who got an honorary Oscar this year, the first woman to ever be awarded an Oscar for like a lifetime achievement. Mm-hmm. Agnes Varda, nominated for... Best uh, feature documentary at this year's Oscars uh, for this film, Faces Places, which was the next one we saw on the docket. I had never seen an Agnes Varda film before this festival. Me neither. So it was it was interesting to see it with a crowd. Um, and also, we were a little late to it, but not very, but they had a, a uh, lecture before the film. I didn't realize that like how important it was to go to the lecture beforehand if you were planning going to the film right after, because everyone was already seated, essentially. <laughs> so it's like, oh, okay, no, we needed to be here for the lecture, right? I now get that, and I will always attend the lectures next time. We lucked out a little bit. Last time we were late to a thing at Britannia, it was for Jira Dreams of Sushi, and we were like in the front row, and the sushi the looked like it was like kaiju sized. Front row. <laughs> yeah. It was terrible, but you know, it was giant sushi, so yeah. it paid off. We weren't that late this time. We, we caught most of the lecture. It was like a really good rundown of um, Varda's career. The orator in charge of the uh, proceedings was this main Jean Brager. He's one of the uh, professors over at Loyola. Loyola, yeah. And it was good to see that beforehand because Faces Places ended up being this sort of like retrospective of all these different mediums Varda's worked in over her career. Mm-hmm. It's a very specific document. It's a documentary, but it's a very spe- specific document of like an art project she did recently. But it sort of brings in all these different aspects of her career. Uh, cause she has done art installations. She's done narrative films, documentaries. Uh, and she's also mentored a lot of people. Mm-hmm. A lot of the French New Wave men that got a lot more credit than she did during that movement, she walked them through the process of learning how to make films because she started as a photographer before a lot of them ever even picked up a camera, um, including Godard, I believe. Yeah, Godard was one of her mentees. And this film is her mentoring this man, J.R., who is a photographer in France. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he does these sort of like giant installation pieces that are very quick. Yeah, he does wheat paste. He's a, he's a wheat paste graffiti artist. Does like this guerrilla art projects where he like overnight will wheat paste like half a town kind of a thing. Yeah, and he drives around this giant basically Polaroid truck that prints out these giant paper things that he can wheat paste like within an hour. He can do a whole project on the side of a building. Yeah. Um, and it's them two coming together and you don't get a lot of actual documentary work from the two of them talking to each other. It feels very staged and like mm-hmm. scripted. It's framed like a documentary, but you can definitely tell the artifice is, like, on the surface. Yeah, like, there's a scene where, like, they bump into... They talk about all the ways they could have met one another. So they, like, bump into each other at a bakery, and they're like, but that's not how we met. And they're like, oh, well, we could have met at this. And then they're like, well, that's not how we met. Uh, And it's all very obviously staged. 
you get a little taste of the humor that's always been in Varda's films through that uh, that kind of montage. Yeah. There's a lot of goofy puns between them and like just a lot of playfulness. Like mm-hmm. she's not a very serious documentarian. No. But once you get below the surface of like the humor and like the playfulness, then you get to this like sort of like deep political stance that she takes, especially on like labor issues. She's a, she's a very political filmmaker. It's just not something you see immediately on the surface details. Yeah, no, she's she's very clever about it. Like she wants you to watch her movie all the way to the end, so she doesn't she doesn't let you know immediately what her political view is. She draws you in first and then hits you over the head with it. She wants you to invest yourself in the characters, even if it's a documentary you're watching. She wants you to invest in it first, and then she'll like tell you what she wants you to like get from it. This is her and Jr. reaching out to these uh, provincial. French blue collar workers mm-hmm. uh, in you know factories, farms, dock workers, dock workers as a waitress, all these like sort of like overlooked jobs, yeah, and that's well outside of urban areas. Like they they did not even go near France for this. I think the largest area where they were were the uh, docks. Yeah, and they travel around in that like Polaroid truck, which is like really like cinematic. Just watching that like. It uh, looks like a camera. He purposely made the truck look like a camera, and then the camera spits out actual photographs from like the base, <laughs> like yeah. a Polaroid camera would. But that's where you get the spontaneity of like an actual documentary is the reaction of people seeing their portraits taken, blown up to this giant size, and pasted to the out- exterior of the spaces that they've occupied historically. Like it's not just paying tribute to the factory workers and the farmers who are occupying these spaces now. It's like marking the space for the tradition that they're like continuing even though like capitalism and like mass production is like putting them out of business pretty much yeah the very first project they worked on i think it was the very first uh was there was this row housing that had been lived in by coal miners for over 100 years and now they're knocking them down to put in new apartments and the last person who lives on this block the one holdout is this older woman she's probably in her 80s and she was the daughter of the coal miner. She was the sister of the coal miner. She was a wife of a coal miner. And she just, she didn't want to leave. Like, that that was her community. And so they do this huge wheat paste of her on the side of the building to show the people who are about to knock down her building who they are kicking out. There's this heavy political bend, like, making sure that people see this, this overlooked group of people and the pride that they like not all of them feel prideful some of them like are like kind of embarrassed but the pride that some of these people who've been like fighting to keep these spaces to themselves when they see you know their own likeness blown up to this like important scale it like chokes you up a couple times yeah no that lady when she came out and saw herself like she was she did a little bit of like elderly woman embarrassed thing like oh all this fuss for me but then at the same time she's like no this is my house I will stay here and this is my house. There was like a farmer where they they put him on his barn and thanks to the miracles of mechanization, he could farm like 5,000 acres alone. So he's so alone. So he's so alone. (laughs) And so they just do this gigantic wheat paste on the side of his barn. He's like, yes, now everyone will know when they try and steal from me who they are stealing from. This is my barn. (laughs) And they ask him, you know, like... Oh, do you think this is going to increase your popularity in the town? He's like, what are you talking about? I'm the most popular person in the town already. Huh. And in Varda tradition, this like traditional documentary uh, interview style with all these different subjects is broken up 
with these like kind of surreal jump cuts and like Mm -hmm. she's also going blind that's a large part of the narrative is that her eyesight is now failing her she's she's... in her 80s and she's still making this like fresh like experimental kind of cinema she'll mix images of her going to the eye doctor tracking her degenerating sight with like bunuel's um the Across. razor cutting the eye. I can't... From uh, Shin Andulu. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Andalusian dog. Yeah. And it's like, you would think a filmmaker at this age would just like kind of be coasting. Like for her in her 80s, like she doesn't have much energy left. It's hard for her to move. Yeah, they did say that when they traveled out in the countryside, they could only do that for two days. And then they had to rest for like nine days. So she could work for two days and she had to take like a week off and then they could work for two days. So they could only really go so far outside of Paris. You know, they could drive as far as they could, but then eventually they'd have to, like, stop and let her rest. But the film itself has, like, the energy of someone in their, like, 20s still playing around with the art form and, like, mixing subversive politics with, like, you know, very personal documentation of, like, her degenerating body, which is something that's been part of her, her work for at least the last couple decades. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very uh, fresh and, like, like I said earlier, really good summation of all the different multimedia interests she's had over her career. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even though this was our first Varda and it's her most recent film, like it's it felt like a really great intro. Yeah, it, it was a very good mission statement on who Agnes Varda is. I feel like we got to know her far better than we got to know JR. JR was purposely being kind of coy with everyone. Uh, in a way that reminded me of like the Banksy documentary exit through the gift shop. Like he wouldn't let anybody photograph his eyes. And when she'd ask him like questions about his past, you know, he was very open about like his upbringing and like why he makes the art he makes and why he likes hanging out with elderly people. But then like there were certain subjects that were like kind of off limits for him, like that he would just wouldn't talk about with her. So I feel like we didn't really get to know him. And so even though it was a co-production, it was very much an Agnes Varda film. Yeah, and he kind of models his public image off of Godard in that he never takes off his sunglasses, which is one of Godard's tics. And the movie plays with that a little bit too, especially with them traveling to Godard's house and sort of being given the cold shoulder there. Uh, so Godard becomes kind of a villain in, in the movie in a way that kind of like pokes at JR's own like vanity in that way. It's like maybe this is a, this defense isn't like your best quality as a photographer. Well, so you're asking people to be very intimate with you and you refuse to be intimate back with them. So, and I think she was like, can't really do that, you know, as an artist. Like, you can't, like, refuse to show the vulnerability you're asking people to give you. So she keeps, like, poking him on the issue. Well, if this movie had actually come to New Orleans um, early enough, instead of, like, late February, if it had come in, like, December, I probably would have made my, like, best movies of the year list. It it was a really, it was a really rewarding experience and I, I wish I had seen it sooner. I'm not sure if I would have made my top 10. I really liked it. Uh, I guess I need to review what my top 10 was. But no, I thought this was definitely one of the best films I saw at French Film Fest, if not the best. And thankfully we saw a couple more Vardas down the line. So so we'll get to those in a minute. The fourth movie we saw on Sunday, so we were very loopy by the time this happened. Yeah. um, Was... The same kind of requirement when you have to see like an Isabella Pair movie every year. I feel like you have to see a Mary Cantillard movie uh, at French, French Film Fest every year. I don't feel like you have to, but it's going <laughs> to happen more likely than not. This was the one that you and I split on the most, I think, out of like our reaction to it. Yeah. This one's called Ismail's Ghosts. It's a very strange movie, especially after watching so much other information in the day. Uh, this is a very fractured narrative with like almost no point to it. It's also a newer release. I, I'm not even sure if it's in, it's in wide release in America yet. It reminded me a lot of a French movie I'd watched last year called Staying Vertical, which is actually available on Netflix right now. 
the entire point of staying vertical is this writer who is hanging out in provincial France, like running away from his obligations in Paris. And the more he avoids his deadline as a writer and his like professional obligation, the more his life spins out of control to the point where at the end of the movie, he's like literally surrounded by wolves and all these other like problems that have like escalated while he's like let his life spin out of control. This movie, Ismail's Ghosts, has a sort of similar trajectory to it. Uh, this filmmaker is making a movie about his estranged brother, who he is sort of fashioned to be this like spot international spy. The more he avoids finishing the movie, the less the movie resembles the reality of his brother's actual life. Mm-hmm. He's also dealing with a wife who disappeared twenty years ago. She just it- sort of uh, she just sort of like vanished without a trace and left him and uh, her father. To sort of pick up the ashes of, like, the bridge she burned by leaving. Uh, So he's looking after his father-in-law and trying to forge a new relationship with this other woman who has her own obligations with a uh, mentally uh, challenged brother. She feels guilt over not caring for her brother as well as she could by seeking out her own pleasure. He feels guilt about moving on from his uh, past wife and also whatever problems he has from his brother being uh, estranged from him, whatever their past conflict was, which we never even really get a full picture of that. And the more he avoids finishing the film he's making about his brother, the worse all of these problems get. His father-in-law's health continues to deteriorate. Uh, His missing wife just reappears out of thin air. He's been missing for 20 years and is declared dead. She is dead. Uh, And that's Marianne Cotillard. And she has this kind of like soap opera amnesia about her like when she first arrives she will give no details about where she's been for 20 years and that frustrates him to like no end Uh, and then you eventually get like the backstory but it doesn't really add up and his relationship with his new girlfriend played by charlotte gainsbourg also spirals out of control and like frays into bits and then he just still will not finish the movie to the point where he's like holding the audience hostage in this like rotting mansion where these chickens are running around he's like wielding a gun And the further and further the movie goes, you feel like there's no possible way all these loose ends can be tied up. And the truth is that they can't. No, they can't. And then uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg sort of wraps the whole thing up in this, like, monologue directly to the camera, almost as if she's reading, like, stage play directions. And then everyone lived happily ever after the (laughs) end. It's like, oh, okay, so don't see how any of it resolves itself. Thanks. It's a total mess. I'm not going to lie that it's not a mess. Uh, but what, what was your like general vibe of this movie? It seemed like pretentious Kaufman <laughs> bullshit, which I don't like like Kaufman movies. Like I don't like, you know, adaptation and Synecdoche New York is like Synecdoche New York is literally I have some issues with like reality and my perception of it. And Synecdoche New York was one of those things that unraveled me a little. Because I watched it, and I swear to fucking God, it was five hours. And I look at a clock, and it was like an hour. <laughs> and I was like, no, time has changed. My perception of reality is shifting again. Oh, dear. This is probably bad for my mental health. Fucking hate that shit. I think Charlie Kaufman is the correlative here. Yeah. He is a filmmaker who regularly writes about writer's block and the frustration of, like, creative drive. Fucking masturbatory bullshit. <laughs> I feel like there's something about, like, the pressure of producing and, like, pushing that onto your audience. I get doing one of them, but if that's your whole career, it's like, I write about having writer's block. Yeah, we, we struggled a lot with Anomalisa. We struggled a lot with yeah, Schenectady. Like um, Hate Schenectady. 
I've, I've liked a couple of his movies before. I think Being John Malkovich and Adaptation are both fun movies. Never watched Being John Malkovich. And I, I thought Adaptation was uh, okay. Yeah. I mean, it, I got it, but like, eh. I'm not going to pretend Ishmael's ghost like stole my heart or anything, but I kind of like the absurd places that kind of like creative frustration will push the plot. It's such a fractured, weird narrative that you see like this like weirdo energy to the film that you... But would... I didn't like his weirdo energy. I was just like, oh, you're being self-indulgent and boring. You're basic. Like, <laughs> oh, you, you can't figure out how to solve your problems. So you're going to run away to a mansion and just have chickens. Oh, cool. I'm going to solve my problems that way. Not. He's just absolutely feral and like dictating the script he hasn't finished just sort of like mentally like oh he had already dropped it at that point he was he was trying to narrate uh <laughs> this overarching theory of the universe about how there's a thread that connects everything from the big bang to like renaissance art and he was literally using a string to connect things in his house <laughs> like charlie day on a fucking yeah. it's always sunny like <laughs> Yeah, essentially. <laughs> I'm just like, well, you're not charming like Charlie Day is, so I just... Mm. And he's wielding a gun, and he accidentally shoots his producer, who's just trying to get the fucking finished product out of him. It's like, just come back for, like, a week. It's definitely a, frust- a deliberately frustrating yeah. watch, but I kind of like the f- sensation of, like, being held hostage by this, like, madman who just won't finish the product. And that, that, that's the weird thing is that took up so much of the film. But the film is marketed as this guy goes to his beach house with his new girlfriend. He's kind of a widower because his wife disappeared 20 years beforehand and has been declared dead for, like, over 10. And then suddenly his dead wife shows up. That's, like, only, like... The first hour of the movie. I mean, because it's like four hours long. It's like two and a half hours, probably. Yeah. And so they never actually resolve that first, the, all the conflicts set up in the first hour. They just drop that. The women, not important. Just drop their plots, have this guy go hang out with some chickens. I don't know. Mar- Marie Tilliard definitely sticks around and keeps tormenting her own father as he's dying. She just keeps stressing him out more and more. I think she's. She doesn't really have any lines after that. She doesn't talk to anyone. She just like appears outside of his window, and then he sees her and has like a heart attack because he's like, "My dead daughter, she's alive." She goes to try to like legally reclaim him at the uh, at the, at the office end. of missing persons, which I thought was kind of funny. Well, she tries to reclaim herself, and they're like really confused. They're like, her. "Oh, you're definitely dead." Yes. <laughs> uh, the part where they're at the beach house with Charlotte Gainsbourg and her and the guy, uh, and he's just like trying to work on the typewriter while like his whole life is falling apart around him. I found that really captivating, and that might have been, like, the better version of this movie. Well, yeah, just, like, him, like, being like, you know what, your dead wife, I can't deal with this, I'm gonna lock myself in this room and just type and leave my new girlfriend and my dead wife to hang out together, because that, I'm sure that'll be fun, that's a fun vacation, right? And they have kind of, like, a persona, always shine, queen of earth kind of dynamic between the two of them, which was very tense in this, like, genuinely dramatic way, where, like, the rest of the movie is so off the fucking rails and just, like, reaching for scraps of logic out of this, like, complete chaos that, yeah, that part is the most compelling and would have made a better straightforward movie, I think. But I'm not gonna lie and say I didn't enjoy, like, how fucking chaotic the narrative structure of this was. Yeah, I mean, I get why he did it. He's a longtime French film director. He's had to deal with writer's block. Probably a little bit of this was semi-autobiographical, <laughs> if in a much more overblown sort of way. I just, ugh, French guys, ugh. And the ending is a total cop-out after 
he writes himself into a corner. He just has a character deliver a monologue, which is not the most compelling. Yeah, which is what writers who don't know what the fuck they're doing and get writer's block do. <laughs> like, oh well, yeah, just a voiceover. Just throw a voiceover on it. And like, he knows that. Like, that was like fucking with us. Maybe because he was playing with the iconography of Persona earlier on. It was kind of a Bergman thing because a lot of Bergman movies are just close-ups of like women directly giving monologues to the lens. But... It's not as convincing here. It feels like kind of a cheap way out of a very difficult spot. Whereas in like Bergman movies, they like knock you on your ass in those monologues. Yeah, pretty much. He didn't knock me on my ass. <laughs> in the BFI program, they wrote the godmother of the new wave. But they called me the grandmother of the new wave, which is more funny. I started actually some years, five years before what came, the real spring of French cinema with Aboutsouf, the Godard, the Quatre-Cents-Coups de Truffaut, then, you know, came these films, Hiroshima, uh, Mon Amour, I mean, great films of, and Jacques Demy did Lola, all these films were very different of what had been French cinema. So, you said earlier in the recording that the Varda doc was possibly your favorite thing you saw at the festival, uh, Faces Places. Mm -hmm. I think the next Varda doc was maybe my favorite thing I saw at the festival. That makes sense. Um, This is from 2002. It's called The Gleaners and I. Um, And it's the same style of documentary as Faces Places, where it's Varda sort of mixing cheesy puns and um, sort of light jokes with this like far leftist political ideology. And also kind of documenting her personal life and mixing that in with the subject of the film. Also very cute at the top of the screening when I walked in to Britannia, uh, their like sort of house cat that hangs around the theater was in the lobby for the first time. I'd never seen the cat actually inside the building before. I'm sort of like lording over the proceedings, which I think she would be into because she always has cats all over her advertising. Yeah, her, her the logo of her production company is a cat. The Gleaners and I is a documentary about trash. Just like one of my pet favorite subjects is garbage. Um, This is why you loved it so much. Yeah. It's partly about this tradition in France called gleaning from the title. Uh, And it's this tradition that's protected by law where after the traditional harvest of a farm, people are allowed to pick over what's left behind by the farming process. And this isn't just a French tradition. This is technically a biblical tradition. So any Christian country would follow this tradition. The United States, we are a capitalist country, so we do not. But uh, most European countries have something enshrined in law, or at least at one time they did. And the idea is like not to let food go to waste, right? Yeah, it's, it's whatever's left over. Like The farmer got all the important stuff. So he can't begrudge anybody who picks up, like, the grains he he missed. And because of capitalism, and we want things to be uniform when we sell them in the grocery store, there's even more stuff left behind than ever before. You, When you go to the grocery store, you kind of want all your potatoes roughly the same size. Uh, but these, like, machines want to pick them up to meet that demand. So then large potatoes that actually could feed, like, a whole family just by themselves are deliberately discarded which in america we love large potatoes but in france apparently they're like large potatoes are too large (laughs) and people keep this tradition alive in this sort of like unofficial capacity like 
the farmers never announce where they're going to drop the food or like discard the things they didn't want that the machine sort of left behind. People just have to kind of know intrinsically and buy like cultural markers, like when and where to show up to pick these things up. Like when they see a group of kids going off to do a thing and they're like, what are you guys going to do? And they're like, oh, we're going to go play in the potatoes. They're like, oh, there's potatoes to go get, I guess. Let's go follow this group of random 12 year olds who happen to know where the potatoes are going to be this this week. So a lot like Faces Places, she's going through provincial France and interviewing a lot of like destitute people who have no trade. And also a lot of like farmers and uh, actually a lot of the lawyers and judges that would enforce these rules and protect people's rights to do this. Yeah, either either they represent the rights of the farmers because some of the farmers like in the grape regions don't want you to pick the left behind grapes. They need those to rot on the vine in order to improve the wine supposedly. So they have unofficially illegally barred people from going and picking the gleanings of the grape harvest. Yeah, and sometimes they'll just throw food on the ground to make it rot to discourage people from showing up on their property, which is like shown to be this great evil in the film. And it kind of is. You're just wasting food. It's just like, well, you weren't going to eat those grapes. I'm just like, you're going to pick them anyways. Just pick them and put them in a bin and like pass them out. Like Now here's where the gleaners and guy gets fucking brilliant is that she extends this practice of gleaning in sort of like this essay film quality. She matches it up with urban trash pickers it's a logical progression, like, of people who go to, like, farmer's markets and, like, pick through the left-behind vegetables that, like, the farmers didn't think were good enough to take home with them. That's, you know, pretty that's, logically... That's pretty logical, like, because they have huge open-air markets, the vegetables are out, unrefrigerated all day, so a lot of the times at the end of the day, whatever the farmer didn't sell, then, yeah, they leave it behind. And that's, like, a pretty close corollary to, like, the tradition of gleaning. Yeah. But then she starts pushing it further and further, and it's, like... People dumpster diving outside of, like, grocery stores when, like, the expiration date's out, okay? Artists who pick up objects out of the trash and then make them into found art sculptures. Going to a thrift store and picking up, like, an old painting no one would possibly want. And, like, rescuing that item from being, like, discarded. And she just pushes it further and further until she just sort of glorifies the whole concept of, like, keeping items in circulation and not letting things go to waste as this sort of, like, counteractive practice to fight, like, the excess of capitalism. This documentary is essentially a living, breathing crass song. And she's asking, like, do they owe us a living? Of course they fucking do. (laughs) Do they owe us their rotting grapes? Yes, of course they fucking do. Do they owe us the table that has a broken leg on it? Yes, of course they fucking do. (laughs) Have you ever seen the documentary about Crass's commune that they run? No. It looks a lot like the kinds of you know, shitty squats that she goes to in these mm-hmm. different places. Like these like kind of found object shacks that people make in the middle of the wilderness. Yeah. Or like that one guy who has this map of places where people give him things and they're like, no, 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 these are places where you're allowed to dump things. And he's like, no, no, no this is the map of where I am allowed to pick things up. <laughs> yeah. He's like, that's a weird perspective on it. <laughs> that is the exact opposite. Yeah, so she hangs out like artsy weirdos. She hangs out with crust punks in the movie. Yeah. So like calling out crass is not out of line for this. It's no, it's a punk no, as fuck no. film. It's very extremely punk. Like a bunch of like French kids with like little tiny wire framed glasses and dreadlocks talking about how like the proletariat has a right to like have access to rotting goods. Yeah, and she starts the film off to um, gushing about the portability and affordability of the digital camcorder and, like, how much freedom that gives her from, like, funding concerns. Uh, And that sort of handheld 
shitty 2000s digital photography has its own kind of punk energy to it because it just mm-hmm. kind of like frees her to run around the city. Well, yeah, because Agnes Varda was a classically trained photographer. She worked in the French New Wave. And now she's like, oh my God, they have mini DVDs and you can put them in camcorders and just record a whole film. Oh my God. It's like, oh yeah, you don't need tripods anymore. You don't need the gyroscope, like steady cam harnesses. Like you don't need any of that anymore, Agnes. She's just so tickled by it. And she's so like, oh, I don't need anyone to help make my films. I don't need cameramen. I don't need boom operators. I can just do this on my own. (laughs) Bye. And all the gleaning stuff that she's sort of like, I don't want to say politicizing, but like giving a political context. She pretty naturally folds that into her own impulses to pick up objects out of the trash like a clock without hands that completely unfunctional but she loves it yeah i mean it's like oh time time doesn't work on this clock like of course time time works on everything but not this clock (laughs) yeah and there's like a humor to that kind of stuff or like when people are picking through the potatoes she's like they're out having a field day like she just loves dumb jokes she she started gathering potatoes and at first she was like oh yeah i'm totally gonna eat these but then she got really obsessed with picking out all the heart-shaped potatoes because heart-shaped potatoes are useless for selling, apparently. <laughs> Since she just ended up with like 20 or 30 heart-shaped potatoes and couldn't bear to eat any of them because they were too cute. So she just let them rot and filmed them rotting. Yeah, of course. <laughs> obviously. So in the early 2000s, after Katrina, mostly, so like a mid-2000s, I was in a punk band with eight of my friends. And our name was Trash Trash Trash. And we would film art and garbage we saw around New Orleans. And we wrote jokey pun heavy songs about garbage and we were like dumpster diving domino's pizza a lot at that time Mm -hmm. the 555 and the hot and ready pizzas (laughs) those things Mm. hot and ready pizzas you have to throw so many hot and ready pizzas away thank fucking god thank you domino's and it became this kind of like trash philosophy it was very loose but Mm -hmm. like our apartment we're living in like kind of a punk house where we're throwing shows so that became just like this trash carpeted nightmare as well and i just identified with this movie so much not only as like, oh, it's so weird to see that specific philosophy on the screen, but also this was from at least four years before we were doing that stuff, and from a 70-year-old woman, not some like idealistic college student punk. Like, Faces Places, I left that thinking of her as like this sort of like mascot to fun, not stuffy, like down-to-earth relatable cinema. In The Gleaners and I, I saw her as like a kindred spirit and like somebody who understood what this world is like the way I do. And for context, I do want you to picture my co-host as an adorable scruffy raccoon in a top hat. (laughs) And Agnes Varda, I believe you could see as a red panda or some other similar looking varmint. Based on her, her beautifully dyed bowl cut where she allows her gray roots or silver roots to grow in, but then dyes the bottom two inches of her bowl cut bright red. I I think she does look like a red panda or perhaps just a raccoon with a wig on. (laughs) So yeah, no, they are the same species of varmint. That's one of the good through lines from Faces Places too, uh, is that in this film, she starts to film the stark white gray roots that are growing out of her dyed hair. And, you know, sometime in the last 15 years, she just kind of said, fuck it, and just let them grow out. And they just dyed the outer rim in this, like, weird bowl cut pattern. Yeah, no, she looks insane now, and it's great. It's like, it's like if you saw her from above, she would look like a bullseye, kind of. Well, okay, so they only did, like, a three-film Varda retrospective. Mm-hmm. And obviously this woman's been working for, like, 50-plus years. You could have done so many different movies. Yeah, they purposely skipped a few of them. Cleo, 5 to 7, and Vagabond... 
those are the two films I know the best of hers, even though I have not seen them. Uh, and I feel like they purposely chose not to show those because they assumed enough people had seen them. Yeah. And I, I think it was respectable to pick this one to play instead of those. Like, okay, maybe those are a little more well-known and you want to get these these names out there. But I feel like The Gleaners and I also has a lot of through lines to Faces Places. Absolutely. I feel like it's part of an ongoing series that she's working on. To the point where, like, the heart-shaped potatoes in Gleaners and I are recalled and, like, shown yeah, on no, screen Yeah, she Faces shows Places. them again. Yeah, she definitely is going back. And I, there's a couple other documentaries that she made around the same time that I haven't gotten a chance to see, including there's one called The Beaches of Agnes, where she essentially creates beaches in Paris by hauling in a bunch of sand and lawn chairs and umbrellas and creating little mini beaches, which I feel is also a very punk installation art act of hers. (laughs) Uh, And then there's also a documentary about her and her relationship with her husband and his death and like documenting his death. And I feel like those four together probably constitute kind of this semi-autobiographical documentary series of hers. Yeah, it's like a diary on top of being these like essay films. Yeah, and it reminds me a lot of the work of Chris Marker. Um, He is also a French New Wave director. Uh, He was known for Le Jeté, as well as Saint-Soleil. Le Jeté is one of the most seminal science fiction films of all time. Uh, It's only 20 minutes long. I highly recommend you seek it out on YouTube uh, or find the Criterion Edition, which is paired with Saint-Soleil. It is all still images that create this story, and it is uh, the inspiration for 12 Monkeys. Mm -hmm. Saint-Soleil is very much in the style of these Agnes Varda films. It is kind of this diary where Chris Marker is going back and forth between Japan and I think maybe the Canary Islands. It's it's one of the islands off the coast of Africa. Maybe it's a little closer to Spain even than the Canary Islands because he talks a lot about the Rock of Gibraltar and the relationship to Spain, how you can practically see Spain from there. So it's sort of a documentary about travel and loneliness, but it's also about his personal life. But then it's also about the letters that other people write to him and his correspondences. And it's about the cultures at that moment of the place he's at. So like he happens upon a parade, uh, like a religious festival in Japan. So he films that and talks about the context. I feel like because he's also a left bank anarchist style new wave filmmaker, just like Agnes Varda, she was also part of the left bank crowd. The two of them have a dialogue in their documentaries where they're kind of talking to each other's styles. I, I mean, I've only seen that once and you showed it to me and it's been a while. We own it. Yeah, <laughs> we I should watch, watch it again. Anytime. The point of context I had more was Laurie Anderson's Heart of a Dog. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, is the same kind of like mixing the macro with the personal mm-hmm. uh, kind of vibe and you know, these like free-flowing philosophical ideas that have like a really strong sense of humor to them while still reaching for like lofty like connections between things. In Heart of a Dog, Laurie Anderson is literally paying a young woman who is in college to teach her dog piano. <laughs> like she's paying for keyboard lessons for her dog, but then she's also like musing about the Tibetan Book of the Dead and what it means to have a good death. Uh, this was shortly after the death of her husband, Lou Reed, and she's also getting ready for the death of her dog, who is not dead yet, but that dog did not look good. <laughs> the dog was getting ready to go. And Heart of Dog also has that like shitty camcorder, like home mm-hmm. movie look to it. It was different seeing that on a TV at my house as opposed to watching Faces Places at the Britannia on the big screen, giving this sort of like accessible, cheap-to-film medium, this like reverence, and seeing it like nice and big and projected. Very singular experience. I doubt I'll ever have that chance again. I really appreciated it. Yeah, no, no. It was it was wonderful seeing Gleaners and I on a big screen. Uh, the next two movies I saw by myself, so I'll try to run through these kind of quickly. The next one was probably my biggest disappointment of the festival. Uh, it's this drama called Four Days in France. 
This is understandably marketed as a grinder drama. This guy wakes up early in the morning, films his boyfriend sleeping with this like harsh like cell phone light, and then hits the road without a word. And you don't really understand what he's doing until the boyfriend starts trying to track him down. And he's basically just running away from home. Uh, and he goes to provincial France and meets a bunch of small town people in the farms and in like the little backways, which you know has become a sort of steady theme over this festival. People going out to the provinces and uh, meeting the real people of the world. But it just wasn't really compelling in this version, mostly because you have this clean cut rich guy just having his like moment of ennui, uh, his like midlife crisis by sort of drifting through the provinces. The way that they try to make this compelling is by having him pick his destinations as he goes through grinder hookups. So you see a lot of him scrolling on grinder and trying to meet up with uh, men for anonymous sex throughout uh, provincial France. Well, that part sounds fun. Not enough gay sex in this movie. Yeah. For a movie about grinder, there's like maybe two scenes of gay sex and it's not very explicit it was like very tame it's also two and a half hours long so good lord for this like aimless drama where nothing's going to happen because it's about like listlessness and ennui like i'm gonna need a little more explicit gay sex in this movie about an app that specifically is designed to facilitate gay sex it's not without its humor uh there's a lot of jokes about like dirty bathroom graffiti uh in these like small bars and restaurants across the country and also these like complicated directions so like whenever someone's like okay yes i want to hook up with you take three rights down this long road uh take a left here when you see this goat take a right over there <laughs> and the co- the directions are pretty comical and like how complex they can be to make these hookups possible which wouldn't be a problem in an urban area where you just be like meet me at this corner you know but that does not sustain the length of the film and if you never buy the severity of this man's midlife crisis, it's hard to, like, care what's going to happen. Oh, poor guy. He had to turn left at a goat. <laughs> and the boyfriend and him, we never see their relationship before he starts tracking them down. So it's really not that... We're not invested in them yet. No, not yet. And I guess they try, in a couple of monologues towards the end, they try to, like, retroactively add some weight to it. And I just wasn't that interested at that point. So... If you're going to watch Four Days in France, just lower your expectations for gay sex depictions because they're not coming. <laughs> you get a couple and that's about it. The next movie is probably the trashiest movie I saw at the festival. It's called All That Divides Us. Uh, it stars an old Catherine Deneuve. Oh, that's rude. <laughs> She's playing like an elderly matron of this family that's falling apart. A matriarch. Oh, there you go. Give her some powers. <laughs> she old. <laughs> well, I mean... You're used to seeing Catherine Deneuve, like, so long ago. Like, I haven't seen her in a movie since Dancer in the Dark, which would have been, like, 15 years ago, I think. Really? I feel like Dancer in the Dark was, like, in the 90s. Like 04. Oh, yeah. dang. I didn't realize it was a new. At this point, in the way she's framed in this film, she looks like a mafia boss. She's, like, gotten to the point in her career where she's, like, kind of had it and is tough and will not take any shit. But it's in this, like, oh, okay, I've already seen it all. I don't have time for this kind of way. Her life is falling apart because her daughter is addicted to opioids and her husband has left her with this like shipping dock business that she's not really sure how to operate. And it's apparently very shady, especially with like union contracts. So she's kind of inherited this like business that's not on the up and up. And this daughter who was in a horrible accident and it's become addicted to like painkillers because of it. The daughter gets her drugs through this local gang of reprobates that 
over the film, you start to empathize with them. Like, oh, maybe their lives are bad because of rich people who took advantage of them and wouldn't give them a job, and now they have to sell drugs to get by, you know? So, like, the rich family is part of the problem. And the two worlds collide at this, like, accidental manslaughter that Catherine Deneuve helps cover up. This movie's so trashy. It's like a 90s throwback thriller. Uh, it reminded me of stuff like Training Day, you know, like... Oh, where it's like, yeah, no, that movie was so trashy. In this one, like, people have to smoke crack at gunpoint, and, like, there's a lot of erotic choking. Oh, I remember there was, like, a Law & Order SVU episode about that, <laughs> where, like, a woman got addicted to crack because she was held at gunpoint to smoke crack in order to find out where the body of her son was after he was killed in a gangland-style murder. There's dog so. fights in this? That's a French thing. It's, it's very French. Pretty gross. Yeah. And also the movie's like a vehicle for this French rapper named Nekfu. Or Nekfu. Mm. N-E-K-F-E-U. I don't know how to pronounce that. Nekfu? F-E-U is crazy? So he's a crazy man? I don't know what N-E-K means, but sure. Sure. He describes himself as a badass in the movie. He says, I'm a badass, which... In English or in French? In French. Oh, okay. All badasses always announce up front that they are badasses, mm, so that you that know. That is true. Yeah, no, like James Dean would walk in the room and be like, I am a badass. <laughs> Done. Everyone's like, yes. So it's kind of like an eight-mile stall drama for this guy. It's his first acting credit, so they're like trying to like pit him against uh, Catherine Deneuve, and her daughter's played by Diane Kruger, who's like a pretty respectable mm-hmm. actress yeah, as well. Yeah, no, she's good. But it's a trashy melodrama with these like violent, exploitative kind of b-movie beats to it poor white people are bad (laughs) i appreciated it enough to enjoy it though because of the environment we didn't really mention this before but like french film fest is like an older crowd than regular film fest does well regular film fest is also older than us but like older is in late 30s early 40s french film fest is like it's a geriatric audience (laughs) yeah like we're we're their grandchildren (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Our grandparents are watching these films, so sometimes if you're watching something extremely erotic, it is hilarious, because like, you get to say, like, are any of them going to walk out, or are they just like going to pop a Cialis tonight? More of that to come later. <laughs> exactly. We'll get back to that. <laughs> uh, in this one, it was just fun to watch this like trashy B-movie out of nowhere. You know, they're showing up to watch this like artsy-fartsy French film, so they mm-hmm. want to see like Breathless a bunch of times. Pretty much. We're watching like these nasty dog fights and these... like pill-addicted women going, like, beyond their morals to, like, get their fix. And people are just gasping and, like, covering their mouths and going, oh my god, uh, which just made the movie more fun to watch. It's like they think France is like it was in the 60s and 70s, and, like, they forgot that France is, like, also in a modern day, just like America. It's like, no, you can't, like, MAGA this, like... <laughs> France has also gone for like America has. Like, France looks very different nowadays. yeah. I can't recommend this movie with a good conscience. (laughs) Unless you're looking for some French garbage. But not fun French garbage like the kind (laughs) Agnes Varda has for you. Trashy French garbage. If you can trick a theater full of old people who don't know what they're going to watch into watching it with you, I can say that'll be a fun time because I have personal (laughs) experience there. But uh, unless you're like looking for like a trashy crime thriller, it's not going to do much for you. If you go to Francophile Grandmother who does (laughs) not like violence, I got a movie for you. The next movie on the list, we did watch together. This one is the last Varda of the the three-film retrospective. And it's the only narrative film they had from her on the docket. Uh, And it's a little closer to her traditional French New Wave era, when she would have been making films alongside, like, her contemporaries. Uh, This one is called Le Bonheur. Le Bonheur. Uh, Translated to the joy or the happiness? It just means happiness. Unlike most French New Wave, it's actually shot in color. 
And she really leans into the color. Oh yeah, no, the color's really gorgeous. I read an anecdote that the reason why the color is so pretty is that while they're filming, something happened to the original color negatives and they faded a little bit, so they made new color negatives and overlaid those. So they had like double color negatives on the print to make it like really bright and really saturated. Kind of like a Jacques Demy movie. Weird <laughs> that she would really love Technicolor, kind of like the person who she loved hanging out with more than anyone else. And the interior spaces particularly have these like colorful voids where there's just nothing but color filling the frame. Yeah, like apparently French people don't hang art on their walls. They And they also have all their furniture as low as possible in the room so that all you see is just this huge cornflower blue wall and like their heads at the very bottom of the frame. Unfortunately, this movie's been allowed to slip into being faded and beaten up again, though. Yeah. And the version they played at the festival was this 2014 2K restoration scan that Varda got to supervise supervise herself. And they redid the sound and the color, and it became super vibrant again. Uh, And it was just, like, almost blinding watching this in the theater. Really appreciated it. What I got from the color and from the subject of the film was, to me, she was doing this, like, DIY satirization of the Douglas Sirk Technicolor melodramas, Mm -hmm. which you and I did a whole episode on those uh, last year. Yeah, I love me some Douglas Sirk. Uh, In this movie, the melodrama is based on adultery. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not adultery, it's polyamory. Well, in a way, (laughs) it's a really sly satire, because you would think the way the movie plays out for most of the film, that it would be almost like an advocation for polyamory mm-hmm. and for people having the capacity in them to love more than one person. Uh, you have this husband who has this perfect home life with a wife and two children, and they live at the very edge of the city where they're pretty much almost in nature, and they're living this like Eden-type existence where they just have naps out in the woods and drink delicious champagne and... Yeah, and like, you know, they tell their kids, hey, I need you guys to take a nap under this mosquito net on this blanket while I go boink your dad. And the kids are like, okay, mama, I will take a nap now. You're right. I am sleepy. It's like, what child does that? And then when they're ready to get up, they're like, I'm done sleeping, mama. What? (laughs) The guy is the working person in the family. The wife is at home taking care of the kids. No, she's a seamstress. She has a job, too. Oh, that's true. Don't belittle her job. She works all day, too. I forgot about that. Good lord. Well, she has one customer during the film. I, I forgot. No, she that. almost has two, but she turns her away because she's fat and ugly. <laughs> and she kept imagining her husband pricking her with a pin and making her pop. What I meant more was that he's like not at the home. He yeah, like... he he leaves for work, and right. she stays to the home. She has an in-house job. Right. His work is mostly in the city. He's a carpenter, so he goes uh, into town and does all these like small jobs in people's houses and in this like workshop that he shares with like some relatives and some other people. And in his, like, traipses out by himself into the urban area, he falls in love with the postwoman, who's younger than his wife and has less obligations. And the way he describes it is that he has so much happiness in his life from these two women. The new one slipping in is just adding to his happiness. It's not detracting from his relationship yeah, with no, his wife. Yeah, no, he has no problems with his wife. He's like, no, no, I love making love to her. I love hanging out with her on the weekends. And in the evenings, our children are perfect. I don't want you to think that I'm sleeping with you because I'm unhappy. Don't get that into your head. I love my wife and I'm never going to leave her. I just also love boinking you and that's <laughs> cool, right? My, my favorite uh, description he has is like, my wife is a hearty plant. You are an animal set free. I love nature. He's such an idealistic, like, head in the clouds goofball. And he's also a 
kind of a pig. But he doesn't know he's a pig, and no one else knows he's a pig. But also, the film is shot from his perspective 100% of the time. We never really get into the headspace of his wife or of the woman he's having the affair with. And that's where you almost get the advocacy for undisclosed polyamory. Like, he's not telling his wife he's doing this until late in the film. Yeah. The other woman knows because, I mean, she's figured out that he's married. But, like, yeah. That all changes in the last 15 minutes. The movie flips over in on itself. I mean, this is going to be a major spoiler, but whatever. Yeah, no, I mean, stop now. Come back <laughs> in about five minutes if you don't want this spoiled. It's It's been uh, 50 years since this movie came out. I'm okay with spoiling it. Or stop now and go watch it. It is available uh, through Canopy if your local library subscribes to Canopy. I'm sure you can find it through... Uh, Filmstruck or... It's a Criterion Restoration. It's Criterion Restoration, so it's relatively easy to find. So if you want to watch it, stop this now, go find it. When he finally does disclose to his wife that he's been having sex with this other woman and explains it and he's like, oh, it's like this other apple orchard's blooming next to the one that we have. Yeah, like it's just an (laughs) apple orchard. And you know, it's not a big deal because they make fruit and we make fruit. Nobody is upset about there being more fruit, right? Everybody loves apples. You love apples. She seems okay with it at first. She doesn't say anything, but again, this whole thing is shot from his point of view. And then she drowns herself. Like, immediately she drowns. We don't know how she drowns. We yeah. just know that she drowns immediately afterwards. I read it as a suicide. You don't get a lot of context You don't there. get any context. Because he sees it as an accident. He sees her grasping at a branch trying to save herself when he's like seeing it in his mind eye. But then again, the whole film is from his perspective, and that is on purpose. What you see after that is that the amount of work he took for granted from her is, like, insane. Like, yeah, not only does she have the seamstress job where she makes, like, dresses for brides and uh, other people who, like, need that kind of work. Custom work. She also, like, takes care of the kids and makes it possible for him to leave and have this extramarital affair. So it's, like, this, like, sly, darkly funny joke about male sexual entitlement where he's, like... Oh, yes, this other apple orchard is uh, blooming next to mine. It's like, yeah, that apple orchard's doing all the work and giving you the freedom to explore other places. Where she was stuck at home, you know, raising your kids and doing all this domestic work. And once she's gone, he doesn't know what to do without her. You know, literally the family's like, oh, you can't raise the kids. We're going to take your children from you and raise them until you figure shit out. Because obviously you can't handle this. And he's like, but... They're my kids. I guess I could see them on the weekends and in the evenings. They're like, well, maybe we'll split them up to make it easier on us. And he's like, you can't split up my kids. They're like, well, it's not your choice anymore. You don't have a wife. You don't get a say. The really dark joke at the end of that is that by the last frame, the same uh, Mozart theme that's been playing over and over throughout the film starts to sound really sinister. Like it starts off kind of cute. Yeah, no, it's a cute, it's a cute little bit from Mozart. It's played in, you know, major key, but kind of like softly, very positively. And then they start playing a little bit more minor and a little bit like louder and more forte and like really like punching it up. It's like stabby violins. Yeah, it starts getting a little stabby in there. And his wife is more or less replaced with the new lover that he had picked up. Yeah, he's like, oh, by the way, do you... Do you like kids? She's like, well, I saw your kids. I'm assuming she must have been spying or like attended the funeral from afar. And she's like, yes, they are perfect children. He's like, oh, good. You're going to raise them now. They're your kids. So if she was an animal set free and he loved her freedom, he basically just steals that from her and makes her a hardy plant. <laughs> like, he, There's a lot of subtle visual language there, but like 
she's tending to the kids and wrangling them and doing stuff. He's like, oh, I'm going to go for a walk. And he just sort of walks off with his hands in his pockets. Like, yeah, he tells it. her, well, you have fun taming them. Yeah. I'm going to go for a walk. <laughs> and the movie is definitely not advocating him treating these women like replaceable domestic appliances. <laughs> but it's not something that you really fully get until the last like 15 minutes, I think. Yeah. But it's not like it plays out like a simple Cirque melodrama before that. There's a lot of weird visual stuff going on in this movie. Yeah, there's really interesting cuts of disembodied body parts, like, in the sex scenes. There's shots of... It honestly reminded me a lot of Wes Anderson, uh, both because of the use of flat color and symmetry, and then also, like, a shot of an apple, a shot of the sky, a shot of... There's a scene where they're at a, a outdoor dance, and there's couples on either side of a tree that's in the the foreground and the couples are all dancing in the background and rather than keep everything focused on the background and pan across every time they get to the tree they adjust the focus to focus on the tree as they pan across the tree like over and over again until we're like really sick looking at this goddamn tree it's like the tree is not part of the plot you could have just moved the camera to the other side of the tree or i don't know not change the focus every time because i didn't need to focus on this unuseful bit of information like and all of that was a stylistic choice and in that dancing scene people are changing partners which mm-hmm. kind of matches the uh the sexual dynamic of the film as well yeah but there's something in the middle there's something distracting right there's a fly in the ointment and that is the tree and it's a natural ob- obstruction as well yeah a hardy plant perhaps <laughs> Uh, also, there's these washes of color. Like, okay, the movie's already super colorful with, like, the interior walls are these, like, blue voids. And there's a lot of, like, floral frames of the film. She gathers, the the wife gathers flowers whenever they're camping. So there's a lot of close-up on wildflowers. Her dresses are all flowers. Her dresses are all floral gowns. When the family is together, the husband, the wife, and the children, they all wear color-coded matching outfits. Which is part of the uh, mistress being assimilated by the end. She, she becomes She's... color-coded along with where the wife would have been. But also, on top of that color, there's also these washes of just pure opaque hues. Like, the screen will just turn purple, or it'll turn green or red. And there's no distinct correlation to what that means within the plot. It's almost like establishing this like weird mood. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like this avant-garde intrusion on this, uh, you know, Douglas Sirk's pretty traditional. It's, yeah. it's artificial in this like really intense way, but it's a pretty traditional, like, yeah, no, uh, he would structure. never. He would never like do jump cuts or <laughs> yeah, you know, put in this like flat cell of color for no reason. And it's interesting. It's not something you can even really. I can't. I've seen it twice now in the past couple of weeks, and I can't really pinpoint exactly what that's supposed to mean. But it was evocative, you know. Yeah, no, I think I think it was emotional color. I think it was to stop the narrative for a moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot like you know when Wes Anderson decides to catalog something, it's like him or his characters are nervous about something so they just need to like focus on something else for a minute and tell you everything they have in their book bag or something like that like where they just like want to stop the narrative for a second to give you a minute to catch up maybe and i think the jump cuts too have a purpose to them in that way like uh when they're flirting him and his new lover there's a lot of quick jump cuts of what they're noticing as they go back and forth Mm -hmm. even though they're talking about one thing they're like noticing each other's bodies and like you said earlier uh when they first make love there's a lot of jump cuts between their flesh and like them entangling. So these like disembodied parts of their bodies. Yeah, like... you see like their elbows interlocked, or <laughs> you see the backs of their knees, or you see a breast. It's not quite the shunting, but it's in that similar yeah, vein. Yeah, no, where... <laughs> it, it, you can't tell where one begins and the other ends because you don't get any context to the shot. 
and the advertising for the movie, I understand why they do this, but it's like the most provocative sexual exploit uh, film about adultery. And it's like, it's not like that at all. The most memorable boob was like this 45-year-old woman who was nursing a baby. It was just <laughs> like, oh yeah, look at that nipple over there across the table while everyone else is eating. <laughs> that's that's a nipple. Like, that was the only time I really registered that I was looking at nudity because everything else was so out of context that it didn't really seem like body parts anymore. So, ooh, it's so erotic. The only memorable boob is being nursed by a baby. It's not that sexy. <laughs> I need to see more of Arter films after this. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, <laughs> I feel so dumb not seeing her before. Yeah. Like, I have Vagabond. I have Cleo 5 to 7 at my job. I have a few other of her films. I don't have the Beaches one, so I'm going to have to find that elsewhere. But I'm really enjoying this, like, satirical subversive sense of humor Mm -hmm. with this like deep political well under the surface that you don't quite get until it's like she she waits she she draws you in like i said earlier that she is very clever about her politics that she waits until you're invested in the characters before she's like ha ha it's about feminism (laughs) it's about capitalism and in the same case as the gleaners and i i feel like this is a punk handmade you can feel the person crafting it version of a a Douglas Sirk movie which is like very studio artificial like intensely crafted cinema Mm -hmm. if punk was a response to the hippies of the 1960s and their bullshit free love politics then I feel like Agnes Varda was also making that indictment like oh yeah no we we can we can be polyamorous she's like no you fucking can't you can't fucking be polyamorous (laughs) like it's about being equals in a relationship and you know I'm punk as fuck and I'm Agnes Varda (laughs) Well, you can be if the power dynamic is, is not that out of balance. Like, the guy takes so much for granted without uh, negotiating, like, how they're going to keep that even, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, the free love 60s was... Depended on women who were willing to, like, put up with it. And, like, everybody learned activism from the gays and the transgender women. And yet, later on, they're like, ah, nope, 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 mm-mm. No, they can't be part of our feminist movement. They can't be part of our political movement. Yeah, no, we... We, we took all their work for granted. There's a lot of uh, macho bullshit from hippies and punks that needs to be, like, rectified. Oh, absolutely. With. Yeah. Well, I feel like early days in, like, DIY punk scene was very, like, inclusive. And then later, just like the hippies, they were like, oh, let's push a bunch of people out of our movement. But what's interesting about Le Bonheur, or I can't never say that. Le Bonheur. Bonheur. Bon? Bon? Eh. Eh. <laughs> what's interesting about this movie is that it actually came out during that era she was indicting the hippies while the hippies were being hippies. Yeah, like John Waters' version of the Cirque came out in like '81 with Polyester, or like Rainer Werner Fassbender came out like in, in the, the '70s. 70s. Uh, this is like in the in the shit. Like this is like <laughs> you know Cirque barely had time to cool on the shelf while she made this, and it's really like impressive, strong stuff. Yeah, she analyzed it very quickly. Usually, you need to wait ten years to understand the previous zeitgeist. She's like, no, 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 I get it. I get exactly what they're doing. The last movie we saw at the festival. Oh, God. One of two movies, I would say, were five-star films for me. Like, I loved The Gleaners and I. This one may be even better in my estimation. It's hard to say. And he loves Agnes Varda, guys. Like, he's wearing (laughs) a shirt that says, I heart Agnes Varda right now. So for him to be like, actually, there's one film that was better than all those. That's something. This is my favorite movie of 2018 so far. I highly doubt it'll be topped. Uh, It's called Double Lover. It's, in a way, a kind of pastiche of other movies I already love, which might be why I'm so in tune with it. It's kind of a mix of Cronenberg's Dead Ringers. Very heavily. 
It involves twins in gynecology. So. Uh, also, pretty much De Palma's entire, like, urban muted aesthetic, especially body double and sisters. A lot of, like, doubling in that film as well, just like Dead Ringers. And it also reminded me of uh, 1982's Cat People remake, which I fucking love. Not only because it's set around the corner from here, because it's also just, like, erotic nonsense. And also just, like, the kinkiest, smuttiest Jalo films you could name. Uh, Pretty much. <laughs> Double Lover is this high fashion nonsense where this ex-supermodel goes to... I don't know if she was a supermodel. I think she was just a regular model. An ex-fashion model <laughs> goes to the psychiatry sessions because she's at her wit's end with medical treatment for the stomach ache that she's had her entire life. And she can't source why her stomach hurts her so much. And doctors basically don't believe her. She has a sort of like masculine medical industry telling her that she's out of her mind and doesn't know what she's talking about. And they offer a- to get her a, a ultrasound and then they're like, but maybe you should just go to a psychiatrist instead. Yeah, they tell her it's psychosomatic. She goes to a psychiatrist and early on the film's erotically charged in that this man is just listening to her talk about her life intently. And it try to, tries to make that this like sexy thing that this guy's just sort of like receptively listening to her. He doesn't say a goddamn word. How fucking sexy is that? No, like that <laughs> works for me. Yeah. And from that receptive place, he tells her like, I can't keep treating you. I love you too much. Just from listening to you talk. Yeah. I haven't actually said anything about myself, but I just love hearing about your problems. That turns me on. What? They move in to their own apartment together. Uh, mm-hmm. She brings her cat, which he does not like. So he hates cats. That's the first sign that he's not the perfect gentleman for her. He mm. does not like her cat. He does not. Things get even more complicated from there because she discovers that around the corner from their flat, he has a twin brother with his <gasps> own psycho- psychiatry practice. Uh, and she starts seeking mental health sessions with that guy as well. Well, because, you know, she lost her psychiatrist. She needs a new one. This guy is not the receptive listener that the first guy is. Mm -mm. He is more of a uh, sexual healer and a pretty much a dom is what I would call him. Yeah, no, he he fucks you through your problems. Like, you have problems, he'll fuck them right out of you. The movie's a mystery, I think, twofold. She's trying to figure out exactly why her lover is lying about being a single child, an only child, and why he would cut all ties from this twin that he insists does not exist. Because she keeps trying to, like, sneak it in a regular conversation, like, what would you do if you had a brother? And he keeps insisting that he doesn't. The other mystery is what's going on with her. Like, what's going on with her stomach? What's going on with her mind? Is she actually crazy? Is there actually something wrong with her? And we don't know the answer to that until late in the film. I'm not going to spoil any of that. It gets too crazy, and you know what? The truth is better than anything we could say, so just watch the film. <laughs> But what I really enjoy about this is that it devolves as these problems get worse in that it becomes this sort of like nonstop erotic nightmare where (laughs) the uh, logic of the film doesn't make any sense except that it's a form of sexual terror in this like surrealist tradition. And it just gets more and more frayed at the edges as she tries to discover the answers to this dual mystery. Uh, And it's so fucking fun. Like, it's such a fun movie. Going back to what I said earlier about watching it in the context of a geriatric French film fest, I was desperately hoping, because this was a packed theater where they were literally counting the last of the seats, being like, we can seat seven more people from the rush line. I was really hoping we'd have more walkouts, because I knew from Kyle Buchanan's 
review of this film, but it opens with a shot of the interior of a woman's vagina during a gynecological exam, and then immediately does a jump cut to an eyeball, directly recalling Bunuel's... George Bataille. George Bataille's story of the eye. Nobody walked out. Nobody walked... Like, <laughs> one, maybe one or two people walked out. I was so pissed. And then from... But they were all like... <gasps> And this is a packed house, too. Packed house. Literally every single seat was filled. Even the terrible ones. And then it goes on from there. There's, like, orgies and incest and negging and pegging and erotic choking and just, like... Cat murders. Red wings. Uh, Everything you could think of. (laughs) Just complete sexual mayhem. This movie's got everything. (laughs) It's like a Stefan sketch. But I think that it needs to be framed... Less as like an erotic thriller throwback and more as a surreal horror film. Yeah, no, it's it's a psychological body horror. It's if horror is either the world outside has gone crazy or the world in your mind has gone crazy, it's definitely that the your reality has broken and you don't know what's real and what's not horror. And it really plays up the like fractured mind and fractured body. She doesn't know what's wrong with her body. She doesn't know where her body begins and ends. And but it even gets pretty traditional in its jump scares and horror beats. Like it's not by the end, you sort of get what genre it's it's picking at. It's not like your typical. It's not an erotic thriller. Right. I mean, it's erotic and it's thrilling, but it's not exactly an erotic thriller. And I think the movie does have themes to it. Like I don't think it's all just empty provocation. Uh, but it's a lot of empty. It's provocation. a lot of empty provocation. <laughs> I think maybe the two themes are both like. You know, male-dominated medical communities that do not take women seriously when they say things are wrong with their body and their mind. Um, and also this, like, psychobabble bullshit about one twin being dominant and one twin being, like, a sub. It's like, what? That's nonsense, but I think it does correlate with, like, power dynamics in sexual relationships where someone's always got kind of the upper hand in whatever interaction you have. Uh, whether or not that changes and fluctuates over the relationship that is debatable and negotiable. But um, there's kind of like a weird power balance, like sub-dom thing that they're playing with, with like the twin imagery, I think. And my God, is there a lot of twin imagery? <laughs> this film, their mirror budget? Oh my God. Almost every shot of the film has a mirror in it. You don't even really know what you're looking at a lot. Like someone will walk into a room and the stairway will be all mirrored. That makes a little sense. But sometimes you're looking at someone backwards through a frame and it's not until you see their shoulder entering from like the right side of the image that you realize you're actually looking through a mirror the whole time. Also, one of the reasons I mentioned De Palma earlier and Sisters in particular is there's a lot of split shots in the film. Not only split diopter, but like split screen where you just see two images uh, next to each other. And then the mirrors even become uh, kaleidoscopes at some point. Where it, it's not only a mirror, it's a mirror that branches off and becomes like completely fractured and like folds in like in a floral pattern. Fractal. Uh, fractal, yeah. Really fun stuff. Really fun stuff. Once you get the point where they're like, oh, they're like twins and the world's bifurcated and it's mirrored. You get the point very early on and then it still keeps pushing the mirror imagery to this like ridiculous extreme to the point where it's like a fun house by the end. Yeah, and this film is beautifully shot. Very classy looking. The plot and the beats are extremely cheap, which is one of our favorite genres where it's it looks gorgeous, but it's such a trashy, trashy film. And they do fun ways of justifying that. Her fashion model past 
is a pretty good excuse for the movie to just look like a Vogue cover. Mm-hmm. And she's very photogenic. She is a gorgeous young woman. All angles and lines, very early on, cuts all her hair off so that she looks super masculine, but like in a beautiful fashion model sort of way. And she works part-time in an art museum. So the movie has like a, a fun way of making the context okay for it to just be the, this art object. And in the museum, the exhibit is called like Blood Flesh, Blood Flesh. And it's very, it's like Cronenberg clinically shot medical photos that are like framed in these like artistic ways. Like they even make a reference to the gynecological tools for monstrous women bit from Dead Ringers. I don't remember how they do it, but I remember. She had like a dream about that. Yeah, she had a dream where, where yeah. He used used monstrous tools on her to remove a child or something. And they do that up front. She she tells him that dream within the first 10 minutes. Yeah. Like you said, the George Bataille thing is like one of the first scenes. Very first. Like it's it's within the first shot. Like it's not the very first shot, but it's within the first scene. Yeah. So it's wearing its influences on its sleeve. It's not trying to hide that it's this kind of pastiche of like these erotic horror surrealist nightmare films. Um, It knows you're going to think of Dead Ringers. It's okay with that. (laughs) But it's such a fun, genuinely sexy remix of these ideas. It's such a fun movie because it makes you feel kind of vulnerable in that it's playing the eroticism genuinely. And then mixing that when you're in that vulnerable position with like traditional scares as well. It's like tapping into your sexual id and then like freaking you out once you're in that space. (laughs) This is like my favorite kind of movie. This, Like you said, it's a trashy premise done artfully. On top of just being, like, accepting and willing to go genuinely erotic while also playing with, like, genre tropes. Yeah, they're willing to push the envelope, which, you know, we need more of that. They went there. The only way this movie could have been more in my wheelhouse is if it included witches, Mm -hmm. uh, drag queens, Mm -hmm. or outer space. Mm -hmm. Maybe pro wrestling, too. Yeah, I was about to say pro wrestling. So if any of those had been in there, this would probably be my favorite movie of all time. (laughs) But as is, it's, like, one of the best movies I can remember seeing in a while. I highly doubt I'll see a movie this year that's better than it. I hope I'm wrong, because, you know, it's always great to see great movies. But I highly recommend Double Lover. It's so good. I liked it a lot. Obviously, I'm not quite as stoked about it as Brandon, (laughs) but it can't be both of our favorite movies, I guess. I want to see it again, too. Like, as soon as the Blu-ray is, like, domestically available, I want want to give it a good, nice watch at home. Because there's a lot of information in that movie, and it was an overwhelming screening. After a week of seeing ten movies... Kind of like I was saying Ismail's Ghost, I was like loopy after watching four movies in a day. I was very loopy by the time we saw Double Lover, which put me in a pretty good headspace for the weird, like, surreal places the movie went. I'd say the Varda movies and Double Lover were probably my, my favorite films we saw at festival. And, you know, Souvenir with Isabel Pierre was high. It was really well. fun, yeah, yeah. No. Yeah, no, I feel like I skewed pretty much about the same as you. I loved getting to watch Breathless on a big screen. I loved all the Varda movies. Especially the documentaries. I thought those were all really great. I love Double Lover. And I was looking back at last year's festival and I think I enjoyed this one more. I think so too. Like I really love seeing the Jacques Demy films though. The only thing that soured me was that the curator for French Film Fest has this insistence on telling you the entire plot and also scolding you. So like he would ask us, have any of you seen this particular Jacques Demy film? And if you said no, he'd be like, shame on you. And be like, well, what the fuck, man? I'm here. I'm putting in the effort. Like, I'm sorry. I don't own the Criterion Collection DVD of it. (laughs) That came out like two years ago. He's getting Um, a little better about it. Yeah, he didn't tell us any whole plots except for (laughs) Breathless. But I put my fingers in my ears so I didn't hear it this year. (laughs) 
But yeah, I'm hopeful about going back again next year because they're getting a little more adventurous, I think, with their programming, and I'm really appreciating it. Yeah, no, they do. That's one great thing about the New Orleans Film Society, and I highly recommend you get a membership if you don't already have one. If you're here in New Orleans, they are really trying to push the envelope as far as diversity in filmmaking, as far as representation. Uh, they could always have more queer content. I really feel like there's never enough gay film for me. Tom of Finland last year at, at the Film Fest was a notable exception. And it was a last-minute edition. And too. it was a last-minute edition. So, you know, I feel like they can always punch that up a little more. But I feel like they really are trying their hardest to represent as many different people as possible. And I think with French Film Fest, I didn't get a chance to see any of them. But they're trying to make sure that you see during French Film Fest that not every French film is filmed in France and not every French film stars white people. <laughs> there are plenty of people who are, speak French and live in a Francophone country and are not white. And they really try to make sure you see those films. Yeah, uh, Swagger was a film at last French Film Fest that was about like first and second generation African immigrants in these like housing projects. Uh, and they also had a movie called Wale, at last regular film fest mm-hmm. uh, that tackled that same subject but from a different angle. Uh, so they do try to include that kind of stuff in there too, and I'll, I appreciate that for sure. Yeah. And I mean, if I'm gonna leave you with any parting words, it's like see Double Lover as soon as you can. <laughs> no, go watch some Agnes Varda films. Go see Double Lover. Yeah. You know, take care of yourselves. <laughs> and we'll see you all in a couple weeks. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Bye.